My father was a lighthouse keeper. My mother was a queen. But life has a way of bringing people together. He could unite our worlds one day. Check it out. Arthur is talking to the fish. for you. Your half-brother, King Orm, is about to declare war upon the surface world. The only way to stop this war is for you to take your rightful place as king. Trust me, I am no king. You do your best thinking when you're not thinking at all. That was the worst pep talk ever. You might want to strap in. of two different worlds. But that is exactly why you are worthy. That was awesome. The war is coming to the surface. And I'm bringing the wrath of the seven seas with me. We're here. What are you doing? Wait, wait, wait. Redheads! You gotta love them! This podcast is sponsored in part by Benjamin Hart. That's me! And yours truly, Zach Arnold. And by participation from listeners like you. So let's tune in to another episode of IPC. 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 The Intergalactic Peace Coalition Podcast. All the galaxies. All for you. Hope you're prepared to dive in head first, because this episode's making a big splash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast. My name is Zach, and I'm so excited to be with you on this fantastic Friday evening, or Saturday, or Sunday, whatever day you choose to listen on iTunes, or Google Play, or Podbean. Uh, however you're choosing to listen, welcome. We're glad to have you. And it's going to be a really fun episode. we got a lot to talk about tonight, both... Uh, pertaining to our primary discussion and some news topics. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it, bringing in uh, the first of two voices that I've got with me tonight. That's right, we got a special guest on the show tonight, but uh, I can't get anything rolling without my friend, my co-host, my good buddy, Mr. Ben Hart. How are you tonight, man? Oh, I'm doing fantastic as always, and I can't wait 
to discuss some Aquaman tonight. Yes, that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. And we've been teasing it for a while, but uh, now we finally get to get into it. Yes, it's a movie from last year. Our last two episodes that were in 2019 are talking about movies that were released in 2018. Yeah, we're behind a little bit. Okay, don't 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 hate us. Like we're we're, we're catching up finally, and uh, I'm looking forward to discussing it and introducing our guest. Yeah, that's very true. This was a this was a big movie. It, it did really really well. Uh, at the American box office, at the international box office. Uh, it did a lot of things that gave a lot of people hope for the DC universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think it's just a little too big for us to try and tackle ourselves. And so uh, we have called in for reinforcements, if you will, all the way from the fandom cantina. It's the founder and primary host of TFC, Mr. Sean Giroux. How are you tonight, man? I'm doing good, man. It's uh, interesting to be here. I think if I looked in the crystal ball six months ago and said, uh, yeah, I'm going to review Aquaman, uh, (laughs) I would not have bet on that one. That's very true. It it wasn't one that people were really expecting a whole lot of. A lot of people thought it would just be another CGI fest with kind of stagnant acting, but I feel like it might have surprised a lot of people, uh, myself included, in in a very... A uh, very happy way, a very uh, interesting way, like you put it. And so we're going to tackle that tonight, and uh, we're going to tackle a few other things as well. One of the things that we like to do here on the show is get some news out of the way first, uh, talk about some current events, and uh, I think some of the most recent current things that have been uh, happening to us uh, have been good for the most part. There's There's some really good things to look forward to. But uh, I think we need to get the the sad and unfortunate out of the way first. We have our first quote unquote casualty of uh, celebrities here in 2019. Although uh, this one wasn't due to a car accident or wasn't due to cancer, she lived a very very happy, fulfilling, long life. But the legendary Broadway actress Carol Channing has departed from this world at the age of 97. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced any of her work or seen anything that, that she's done that's been on like a VHS uh, video cassette or something like that. Because, I mean, that was kind of when she was in her prime, was VHS and even before that. So uh, unless you saw her work in person, it was really kind of hard to tell uh, just what an impact she made on the acting community. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I wasn't overly familiar with her, but I'm sure... Like with anything, like y- y- you had to be influenced by her or probably seen her, even if you didn't know who she was, because you know she's just was just so prolif- prolific. Sage, did you ever watch the? I imagine you have, but uh, I, I just want to get this confirmed. Did you ever watch the TV show uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, yeah, all the time actually. Okay, uh, <laughs> do you remember Ryan Stiles, the tall guy that sat next to Mo- uh, Colin Mockery all the time? Yep, sure do. He's from the uh, Drew Carey show. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. And then he, he kind of carried over with Drew over to Who's Line. And uh, one of his favorite things to do on Who's Line, this is one of the things, this is so weird, this is one of the things that I know Miss Channing for more than her actual work, is Ryan was such a big fan of her work that whenever he got the opportunity he would do impressions of her doing during his uh, during his bits on the show. 
And so anytime you heard him kind of get a little bit nasally on the show, he was doing a Carol Channing impression of some kind. Oh, boy. And it was actually pretty funny because there there were certain inside jokes that would go around a certain episode. Uh, I think at one time they were doing uh, a stand-up routine where you just pick random situations from a hat, and then you have to go out onto the stage and act it out in like 10 seconds or less. And at one point, one of the characters said something from one of the prompts that was like, I'm Spartacus. And then some other situation came up, and Ryan went out there, and in his Carol Channing voice said, I'm Spartacus. (laughs) And so, like, she had a very iconic voice, obviously, she had a very iconic demeanor that carried her through Broadway, and, and I think she did some comedy for a time. Um, but, you know, if you if you try and find, like, videos of her, it's really, really hard to do. I think there's some that are on YouTube, but not very many. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, the New York Times article that we found that, that was kind of like a like an electronic obituary said that Miss Channing's voice, gravel tone, and capable of sinking to subterranean levels was as distinct distinctive as her appearance when she sang a song in her exaggerated growl it belonged to her forever only louis armstrong's own growling rendition of the song hello dolly was a match for hers so she she had a lot of iconicism attached to her and for the people that know her and know her work i i truly believe that she will be missed yeah yeah and it's almost like i hate to say this almost but like you almost are almost jealous of people like her. I mean, like Stan Lee and now Carol, uh, you know, she's lived to be 97 yeah. and like had such an amazing mark on pop culture and the world. Like she had an amazing life. Like, you know, as I think, I think we said with Stan Lee, like most of us can only dream of having the impact and the life that she had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here I am. I, I just found out, and this isn't this isn't to be like demeaning to our own program, but it's just for comparison's sake, if you will. You know, I just we don't need any help with right. That. Like I I make fun of myself so much that I don't need help from others to make fun of me. I really don't. Guys, I know I suck. All right, but just just for sake of comparison, I mean, during during a Broadway play, you obviously impact hundreds of people just with that one production alone but she was on broadway for years and years uh but to to kind of do like a a soft comparison and a little self-promotion i just checked uh my time hop and one year ago today ipc had hit five thousand downloads and uh then i looked at it today and we're up to twelve thousand one hundred sixty seven which is pretty dang awesome we had yeah. over 7,100 listens in the last calendar year, and if you take away the three weeks that we weren't on the air, that means we had almost 150 listens per episode. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. But Carol Channing, she probably entertained 150 people per production. At least. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's bound to be thousands and thousands of people who were affected by by her production of Hello, Dolly, and anything else that she was a part of. And so uh, our condolences to her uh, remaining family and friends and fans. Um, You know, obviously, 
we we can't really rant and rave about her as much as somebody like Stan Lee, but uh, I I do I do believe she will be missed. Oh yeah, totally. All right, so the next couple of pieces that we've got to talk about tonight are actually pretty interesting, and uh, this one actually does relate to Stan Lee in a certain sense because yeah. you know last week we talked about Spider Man into the Spider Verse, and then this week, interestingly enough. We got the first trailer for the live-action Spider-Man Homecoming sequel, Spider-Man Far From Home. Thank you, Spider-Man. That was so good. Hey, sorry I'm late. Happy. You look nice. Thank you. You too. Thank you. New dress? Yes, it is. How'd you know? (laughs) What just happened? Planning a trip? Mm-hmm. Going to Europe. It's a school trip. Did you get your passport? Peter Parker here to pick up a passport, please. Mini toothpaste? Mm-hmm. Pack your suit. I just want to go on my trip with my friends. Europe doesn't really need a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. <laughs> you look really pretty. Therefore, I have value. No, no, that's not I'm right. messing with you. You look pretty, too. I just want to spend some time with MJ. I think she really likes me, dude. That reminds me when I first fell in love. I had just finished my food call. So nice to finally meet you, Spider-Man. You're Nick Fury. Put some clothes on. Let's go for a ride. Is he going to be okay like that? Might want to turn him over so he doesn't swallow his tongue. Nick Fury just hijacked our summer vacation. Awesome! You got gifts, Parker, but you have a job to do. Are you going to step up or not? You're all alone. Your friends are in trouble. What are you going to do about it? You don't want any part of this. Who is that guy? He's like Iron Man and Thor rolled into one. He's no Spider-Man. What is it with you and Spider-Man? What, he looks out for the neighborhood, has a dope suit, and I really respect him. Sup, dickwad? To be honest, it's gotten some mixed reviews, and so I'm kind of curious what you guys' thoughts are on it because I was pretty, I was pretty okay with it. I mean, I, I felt like it it told what what we needed to know, and it gave some pretty cool visuals, and it teased a new character, like anything that you would want from a trailer. I felt like it had, but that was it. Like it 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 was. It felt like a a, a list of check marks being checked off, and then. And then you were done with it. I don't know. Sage, what did you make of the Far From Home trailer? Uh, I wasn't like blown away by it. It's not like it was the greatest trailer I've ever seen. And yet I found myself sitting there going, the biggest thing that stands out about this trailer, when you look at the uh, even the previous Spider-Man MCU movies or the Amazing Spider-Man movies or the, uh, I guess, the original Spider-Man trilogy, 
is this movie looks the most different from all the other Spider-Man movies that have come out. And that has me intrigued. Uh, you know, it's not just in New York again. It's it's something new. They're, yeah. And, and, I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal at the end. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Gyllenhaal fan. So uh, I, I really liked what I seen, and I liked that it seemed very different. Ben? I, I totally, yeah, I totally agree with Sage there. I think it... It it goes a long way. This it this just looking at this trailer, it looks way different than any other Spider Man movie. Like, and I think, you know, you have the original Raimi Spider Man. Like, that's the kind of the classic trilogy, kind of the kind of where we measure everything from. And you know, you know, those movies are different in their own way, but they're mostly you know set in the same place, doing similar things, just with you know you know similar characters and a different villain, basically. Whereas these new films have set themselves apart. Of course, we just got Spider-Verse, which was something completely different. And then we're getting, we got Homecoming, which was something that was also very different in the way that it didn't try to do what Amazing Spider-Man did. It tried to do its own thing, which is, you know, set, you know, instead of swinging through building, th- swinging through the, you know, the streets of New York across buildings and stuff like that, he was swinging through suburban neighborhoods and, you know, running across golf courses and stuff like that, like putting Spider-Man in places we've never seen him before. And this one's doing the same thing, except now we're in different countries. We're in London. We're in Venice. Like, that's really interesting. That's really cool. And it, it just it presents a very different style to it. And then on top of all that, you've got Mysterio. You've got the apparently the old elementals, which could be you know, Molten Man, Sandman, I don't know the entire mythology there, but, like, that also presents, like, this really cool, like, different look for this movie. So that's, I really appreciate what the MCU, MCU, excuse me, is trying to do, trying to do with these films and not just retread everything like that. They just started with Homecoming. We really didn't even get Spider-Man's origin, like, outside of one line. Like, it's just been, like, you were up to speed, you know what's going on, here we go. And, you know, we get the... The, the the Ben Parker uh, briefcase in there, yes. which is pretty cool. But other than that, like, there's not um, there's not much else. Like, they haven't even mentioned like Uncle Ben yet. I don't think. No, it's it's always been rather indirect. Although I did see a uh, a photo that was posted. I don't know, Sage. Did the Phantom Cantina post it, or did I catch it somewhere else? Um, there was there was a photo of, uh, floating around the internet that was like screenshots of certain moments in the trailer. That uh, you would see like a sign or or uh, a name on a ship or something like that, and um, and it was like AS thirty nine or something like that, and it's a reference to the comics actually. So based yes. based on which one you're seeing, because I think there was like Waterman or something like that at one point. Every time one of those characters is coming up. Uh, you see something like that in the background, and apparently each one is a reference to the publication of that character in the comics. Yeah, like uh, like the one you're referencing is early on in the trailer. It's about 49 seconds, and it's Ned's posing for a photo, and you see behind him it's ASM 212, which is Amazing Spider-Man 212. Um, I can't remember what the significance of that is. There's, but there, there's multiple though, because there's one that's on a on a license plate for a car in Venice when Molten Man yes. shows up, I think. So there's and like down to down to the uh, the the uh, Peter Parker's birth date on his passport is the date 
that the first Spider-Man comic was ever published. Now that's, that's detailed. Awesome. That's really detailed. I didn't even take a look at the screen grab of the passport, but that's cool. That's really really cool. Okay, so not the year, but the but the month and the, the day. month and the day. Yeah, Spider Man's not that old. Obviously. He's not like from the forties. Obviously, obviously, yeah. <laughs> so here's here's the source of the controversy, if you will. Um, obviously, he's dust right now, according to the canon. Yeah, he he's been snapped. How does he have a trailer? Do, what do you what do you make of the timing of it? And do you think? It's like official confirmation that whatever it is that Steve came up with is successful, or do you subscribe to the theory that maybe this adventure is happening in a parallel universe that he was sent to after the snap? As far as I know, the movie takes place before Endgame. From what I've heard, well, before Infinity War. from, From what I heard, it was supposed to be after i be- i believe kevin feige kind of sort of may have confirmed it actually that this play takes place after endgame i think that's what he said i mean it's it's not i don't which is which is kind of a huge spoiler right. to be honest because like cuz think about this though this is not the first post infinity war movie marvel movie we've gotten you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp was also, you know, released after that movie, directly after that movie. But everyone just understood that, hey, this is, you know, stuff still going on, even though, the, you know, very cataclysmic events happened in that movie. Like, we're still having this other story happening, and it's very clearly that it was set before that. They could have used that in the marketing of this movie to go, hey, this just this is just set before that all happened. Like, just believe that, and then you get down to... The part where, obviously, like, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that they're going to undo what happens in Infinity War. But to what extent, we don't know. But I think this movie almost spoils the fact that maybe we're dealing with the fact that whatever happens in Endgame undoes everything to the point where Infinity War never happened. Like, some people were speculating that the field trip that... Peter Parker is going on in Infinity War is this trip. And somehow they pushed back time and basically nothing, that never happened or came to pass. But that was a different field trip that I think they confirmed. But like, still, I don't know, it's it's weird that Kevin Feige would say that, but on top of everything, I think you know, you, you get people talking, but ultimately you don't answer their questions and just let them believe, oh, this is set before Endgame or before Infinity War. Yeah, that's one thing that the MCU has been really good at doing lately is starting the conversation, but not necessarily helping you finish it. And it's a little frustrating because there's plenty of speculation, plenty of rumors and nothing ever really gets confirmed. We never really go anywhere until after it happens. And so I don't know. I would like to subscribe to the theory that it's another universe. And the reason he's in another country is because, you know, he's trying to find his way back home, both, Literally and figuratively, or something. I don't know. But either way, Spider-Man is just such an iconic character. It's hard. Excuse me. I had Sprite before we did the show. Woo! Um, It's hard to eliminate him from the MCU practically a year or two after you introduced him. You know? So, 
Yeah. I mean, yes, it, it was it was very dramatic when when Tony Stark was holding Peter in his arms and you know all that stuff. But at the same time, you're also like, yeah, he's coming back. Like it, it's hard. It's hard to like grasp that reality and hold on to it and say, yeah, he's not really. Like he's really, really gone. You're you're sitting there going, yeah, he's coming back. Well, I mean, even even though they, I don't think they'd had named it at the, that point, but I think Spider-Man Two: Homecoming Two, I guess at that point, had already been confirmed when Infinity War was released. Yeah, and I remember my first thought in the theater because I mean you see all those characters die, and I was like, holy crap, they're killing that, and they're killing him, and they're killing her, and they're killing her. And then when Black Panther goes away, I remember that one clicked with me. I was like, okay, this is going to be undone, because there's no way they're going to allow Black Panther, after all the hubbub about that character and you know the fact that he's getting a sequel and he was so popular, there's no way they're going to kill him off here. Yeah, He's going to come back. Yeah. So that clicked in my head. So... Despite all of the confirmations or whatever that Marvel had said about future films, like my, you know, cynical, logical brain went, nah, I'm not buying this. Um, it was still emotional. It still hits you in the feels, but ultimately, you know, they're going to fix this. Yeah. I think yeah. another thing to remember might be um, is that this is Tom Holland's last movie on his deal. He signed for five movies, and uh, it's movie number five. And to really? my knowledge, there's no extension in place yet. And with uh, Sony doing, I can't remember what Venom did, but it beat the uh, Spider-Man Homecoming box office. Um, you know, I wouldn't count out the possibility that maybe this is it. But who knows? Wow. Yeah, that's what that's what scares me, honestly. I, uh, yeah, Venom being as successful as it was, that really, and, and Spider-Verse 2. Like mm-hmm. it really is. You you got you you see. I think everyone is pretty well enjoying what MCU is doing with Marvel, but it's not set in stone. Sony could pull back and go. It would be foolish of them to do so because what makes this Spider-Man great is the fact that you have Tom Holland, but also he's in Infinity War. He's in all these things. He's getting to interact with people like Nick Fury and Tony Stark. Like he's in this universe. You take that all the way, and you're just stunting the story and the characters. And I don't know. I, I would hope and pray that Sony doesn't say, oh, we want our Spider-Man back. Like, I, hopefully they'll keep working with them. But it, it is like they have enough clout now to say, nah, we don't need you, Marvel. I'd like to find, like to hope anyways they find you know uh, middle ground somewhere and that greed doesn't win out because I want to see uh, Spider-Man's story continue in the MCU. But at the same time... I would not be against seeing Tom Holland Spider-Man meet up with Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock, uh, even if it is in an alternate dimension and they find a way to make both work. Uh, I enjoyed both movies. Or just, or just fold it, just fold Venom into the MCU. Like, just do it. Or, 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 or do a new movie where it's in continuity. I've, I haven't seen Venom, um, but uh, I, I think you, 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 you could still do it. Um, but I don't know if they're interested in that. Well, I mean, it, it, it sounded like that was Sony's first choice was to have it be a part of that fold. Cause I felt like they thought maybe they'd make more money that way. But then when, uh, 
when the director of Sony was sitting in the same chair as, as uh, or sitting in the same stage with uh, Feige and was making these implications about the, the similarities and the potential for crossovers, Feige just kind of looked at him cross-eyed, like, uh, no. So I, I really don't know what their stance is on it. I'd be intrigued to see what happens, and I'm, I'm hopeful that Holland comes back because I really enjoy him as Spider-Man. And like you said, Sage, uh, Hall as Mysterio is also really intriguing because Mysterio is a really interesting character in the comics from what I've been led to understand. And uh, it should be interesting to see what he tries to do uh, in this movie as well. So we still got a ways to go. We still got Captain Marvel to watch. We still got Endgame to watch. So maybe, maybe some things will become a little bit clearer the closer to the movie we get. Maybe they can ease into yeah. a decision knowing that uh, I'm sure they were worried Venom was going to be a flop. I mean, I was. And most people that I, I know that talk about this fandom-related stuff didn't have the highest hopes for it. And I got to tell you, I thought it was really good. It was super enjoyable. And, you know, the near $1 billion it made in the box office would seem to suggest so as well. I did something right. Uh, yeah, it, it hit... It hit the the right notes for the right people, and from what I understand, it had a really really great international run. Yeah. So, uh, which is actually the same for uh, our movie that we're discussing tonight. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Here, we got one other little tidbit that we wanted to discuss. And uh, Ben, I don't know if you're going to have a whole whole lot to contribute to this one. Unfortunately, I'll let you take over this. Uh, one. This one is is very near and dear to to my heart and and Sage. I know it's it's close to yours as well. Uh, we've been waiting for this since what August of 2017, basically. Uh, the season finale was in August of 17, and it's been over a year, close to year and a half at least. Uh, before we actually got any substantial information about uh, about this particular series and, and getting some closure to it. But uh, this past week, we got our first teaser for the final season of the hit HBO series Game of Thrones. You have to protect. It's another one that's been discussed heavily, uh, including between the two of us. And uh, I'm just I'm just curious. After seeing it a few more times, Sean, what do you make of this teaser and the implications that it has for uh, for the series as a whole? 
Uh, when I first seen it, I was kind of let down a bit because I thought we were getting a teaser with footage from the season. Yeah. Uh, and this is not footage from the season. This was uh, uh, literally directed just for the teaser. But I do think there's some hidden meaning in there. There usually is with Game of Thrones. Uh, and, you know, it, it whets our appetite until we get a uh, a proper trailer, which is coming. But uh, I think after all this time where the show starts and where it is at now, it was proper to uh, focus on the Starks and uh, those approaching them. Yeah, I mean, they've kind of been the the flagship, if you will, for um for for the the series you know you you're following the starks as soon as the show opens pretty much and so you've been you've been keeping up with them for for quite some time and to uh to kind of circle back around to them is uh is a is a very interesting thing and then we've also got like quotes from the family members they pulled like audio excerpts from uh, from Ned and uh, from Catelyn and somebody else, I want to say, and it's like a prelude to them looking to the kids looking at their own crypts, and it's just it's really really interesting to 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 get some reminders of stuff from the previous seasons, and then also basically face your own mortality right before you die or you run the risk of you know getting into a conflict where you could die. And I don't know. There was something about the crypts for the two girls. They looked like like themselves, if you will. They they looked as if they were right then and there. But at the same time, uh, John's looked like it was several years dated into the future a little bit, and that's been a source for a lot of speculation. Wondering if that means he survives, but the other two don't. What do you think? Uh, see, when I first seen it, I thought the same, but now after seeing some behind the scenes stuff, I'm just wondering if it's not the greatest, uh, you know, carved statue, you know, I, I think maybe it's more <laughs> like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a Ronaldo statue. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> I, it's hard to read too much meaning into it if it's, you know, completely unintentional like that. I think the thing we need to read into is the uh is the the ice coming down into the cave and you know we we know the white walkers are coming but why are they in the crypts and uh it, it made for like it it raised more questions than it obviously gave answers and uh it has us all craving a trailer and then the actual release here in uh two and a half months or so so do you expect one to come during, like, Super Bowl weekend? Is that kind of along the lines of what you're thinking? That's what I, I would bet on, that they're going to have a 30-second uh, spot on, uh, or during the Super Bowl, and then probably, you know, they'll show the actual full trailer the next day, similar to what Solo did last year. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see can that. You, can you imagine a Avengers trailer, Game of Thrones trailer, and Star Wars trailer? That all happens... Uh, it'll be the greatest Super Bowl of all time without even considering the game. And uh, <laughs> oh boy. that's why we have those uh, Super Bowl trailer reaction shows for moments just like these. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's it's due it's it's due when, Sage, is it the fifteenth? Uh, 
I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? You broke it up for me now. Uh, it's due on uh, April the fourteenth, correct? Yes, yes. April fourteenth is the uh, the first. Uh, I guess you could say episode, but really we're getting six featured length films. So right, they're each going to be like ninety minutes long or something. Yeah, ninety like that. minutes to two hours each. Yeah. Jeez. Well, because Benioff and Weiss wanted feature-length films to be released into the theater, and HBO nixed it, and just yep. gave them like a higher budget, saying, put it on our channel, we'll give you the budget we, that you need. It was supposed <sighs> to be like a $130 million budget for season eight, and uh, they've cleared 200 so... Good uh, lord. We'll see. <laughs> Good lord. Okay. So, in the midst of all that, we have a little announcement to make, Sage and I do, uh, and then we're going to jump into Aquaman, see what I said there, jump into Aquaman. Um, in light of the return of Game of Thrones, we would like to take some time to discuss the series again, but do it in a very different way. Back when the fandom fraternity was around, we did a discussion of the series season by season, and that was really fun. But it was really, really comprehensive, and sometimes the episodes lasted like three plus hours or something like that. It was, it was insane how much we talked about this show. So uh, we want to talk about it again, but in a different way. And I think we've come across a really, really cool method of discussing this show. Uh, it's going to be titled Call the Banners. And we're basically going to be talking about each important house of Game of Thrones per week leading up to the series. And then once the series comes back, we'll be doing episodic reviews that go into May, pretty much. So I'm pretty excited. I know, Sage, you're excited. It's it's cool to get back into the swing of things and to be discussing it in this manner. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think we the first show we have goes live on uh, February 11th, and the last show ends in... Uh, ends in June because the, the series itself won't end till late May. So yeah, it, it uh, takes, it's a 17 it's... <laughs> part mini series, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, mini series. We, we put the series in mini series. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're going to be looking at the different houses. So we'll be talking about the, the Starks, obviously the, the Lannisters, the Baratheons, and then we're going to be even getting down to, you know, the Boltons and the Greyjoys and some of the supporting families like the Tarleys and maybe Brienne of Tarth will get like a segment. So, you know, we're going to be as comprehensive as we can looking at the rise and decline of the different families throughout the course of the series. So we'll have like one episode devoted entirely to the Lannisters right before the series premieres. And we'll be looking at what they've accomplished and who has survived up to that point over the course of seven seasons. So should be interesting. I feel like I'm up for the challenge, and uh, whoever else joins us will uh, we'll feed them to the, to the dire wolves, if you will. Well, we have a, a Game of Thrones death pool uh, that's set up, and it's on, I think, 41 or 42 characters that are still alive. And you essentially just pick if they're going to live or they're going to die, and... Uh, my girlfriend made these two beautiful, huge Bristol board cutouts, and it looks like a nice graph. And there's actually some people from uh, these neck of the woods here at 1138 that are participating in it. Uh, Dominic, Kieran, yourself. Uh, I'd say Ben, but I don't think he's seen a single episode of the series. So Okay, but wouldn't uh, it be interesting if we let Ben do it just so he can pick them at random, live or die, live or die, and then we see just how accurate his picks are? 
Well, I, that's, that's a funny idea because I, I believe my girlfriend's sister is doing that as as well. So oh. you could almost pit Ben against Shawnee, who Ben has actually met. Um, yeah. In the we have not seen a single episode of Game of Thrones, but let let's do the death pool and see who gets uh, more right. <laughs> I'm just gonna pick everyone die oh. because, <laughs> because it's game. Here's that theory again. <laughs> there is that theory that the Night King just wipes everybody out, no matter how much they resist. You just die. So no, no, it's gonna be like you know, end of Game of Thrones. You know, the final episode. You know, they're staring at each other down. Somebody's going to kill somebody. And then a portal opens up and Thanos shows up. <laughs> and he's like, snap! <laughs> Half of you going to die. Oh, because... man, that got me. I... <laughs> I was not expecting that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that setup, though. <laughs> oh, man, that, that really got me. So, yeah, if you are interested in hearing our uh, our Game of Thrones discussions that comes in early February... Go follow the Fandom Cantina. Go follow IPC. Go follow us on social media. Go find me on social media. I'll be talking about it a lot on my Twitter page, at Zach underscore DFW. Call the Banners premieres next month, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, are you guys ready to talk about what we were actually supposed to talk about tonight? Ready as always. Um, so let's let's go into like spoiler-free initial impressions and thoughts first. Because it's it's still new. It's, still new. it's relatively new. It's been out three or four weeks, and uh, maybe there's some people that haven't seen it yet, and and we need to convince them otherwise. Uh, but uh, it's it's just kind of a, a standard procedure that we do here, just kind of given our overall thoughts, and then we'll give some conclusions and. Uh, overall scores out of 10 at the end of the night. So, Sean, you're our guest. What were your initial impressions of Aquaman? Well, I have to confess that that entire day leading up to going seeing the film, uh, it's not like I said, hey, I can't wait to go see Aquaman. My little guy wanted to see it, so uh, my girlfriend and I took him. But, like, the hours leading up to it, once I found out it was, like, a two-hour and 15-minute movie or whatever, I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> I cannot sit through another two hours of DC dropping the ball. Uh, so, like, I I was trying to be bright for my son and positive, and at the same time, it's like, this is going to kill me. Uh, so about half an hour into the movie, maybe not even that, I was just, like, like reaching down, pinching myself, like, holy s***. Or, oops. Uh, pardon me. Pardon my language. See, force habit. Let me uh, make a note on the time code. Uh, we're going to have to bleep that oh, one out. Whoops. It's been a while no, since I've good. been... Uh, yeah. Uh, you're good, man. I was like, oh my god, this is a... Uh, this is a good movie. And I'm like, surely they're going to mess it up somewhere. And honestly, by the end of it, the whole car ride home... Uh, my little guy and my woman were just like, come on, admit it. You were wrong. You were wrong. It was a good movie. I'm like, it was a great movie. And I'm still trying to, like, between the CGI and the acting and, more importantly, the positioning of the performers, meaning the actors and actresses and how they are uh, um, seen together on screen uh, mm -hmm. is amazing. James Wan, who, uh, if you don't know, did uh, the Conjuring movies, uh, is is brilliant, and uh, I think as good as the cast is, the the biggest thumbs up for me goes to James Wan. Well, uh, it, it's mm -hmm. it's very true because like you can you can have all these different elements, 
But until you've got somebody that's able to piecemeal it all together into something, you really don't know what you've got. And James Wan gave us something really, really great. I, for one, was blown away at what the final product was. I really was not expecting all of the things that I ended up getting with this movie. I was hoping, okay, maybe we'll get a few of these and then I can I can shrug my shoulder and kind of turn a blind eye to some of the other elements and just kind of live with what we've got as a total. And, uh, you know, I'll be able to give it like a 7 or an 8 or something like that and, and we'll be done with it. It's just another DC movie. Nah, that kind of thing. But one thing you got to know about me is... My freshman year of college, I was bound and determined to be a marine biologist. That was my goal. I wanted to be a marine biologist, and I wanted to study the uh, hierarchy of shark interactions and behavior. Like, I wanted to, to be an animal behaviorist. I wanted to be, like, a specialist. And my uh, freshman year of biochem, I found out I was not cut out for the sciences. <laughs> but... But marine life has always had a very special place in my heart, and Aquaman just reinforced that for me. I really, really got to um, to experience marine life in a different way. I got to experience my nerdism in a different way. I got to uh, just enjoy myself for two solid hours looking at the visuals, looking at the acting, the, the characters, the music, the components... Everything just seemed to fit together in such a really, really cool way, and I was very pleasantly surprised at how entertained I was, and even at the moments where I thought I might actually cry. I literally had a few tear-jerker-type moments in this film, and I got to go back and watch it today in an empty theater with reclining leather seats, which was amazing. And I got to provide, like, my own commentaries on it and stuff, and I did not hold anything back when I had those tearjerker moments. I was like, oh, yeah! Like, I flipped out at certain moments because of how much I enjoyed them. And I got to do that unabashedly because nobody else was there to see me do it. But overall, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Probably one of the most pleasant surprises of 2018, right up there with the pleasant surprise that is into the Spider-Verse. Totally, totally. I I agree with you guys wholeheartedly, I think. You said you almost cried. I did cry, all right? I did cry. That's when I knew that I actually really loved this movie was when that happened. And it let me go back and say that while I wasn't dreading this movie like Sage, I was not looking forward to it as much as maybe I could have been. Just the simple fact that it's a DC movie, you know, it's it's not, they don't have the best track record, you know, I'm not as invested in this universe as I am something like the, D the MCU, and overall, I mean, I'd heard good things, and I was still like, the trailers never got to me, I never really, you know, it, it just never hit me in the right place to say, oh, I'm excited about this movie. If I hadn't heard, like, really, really good things from a lot of different people, I might not even like bothered seeing it, except for the fact that I kind of needed to see it to be on this episode. <laughs> so, like, you know, I was kind of forced into doing it. I twisted I your arm there. out of obligation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, called exactly. peer pressure, so, folks. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's just I'm, I'm bullied all the time. It's horrible. Um, So I get in, and within the first, like, ten minutes, like, I'm getting all the feels. Uh, there's tears. There's laughs. There's, you know, great action. It had everything, and I was, like, totally drawn in to this movie from the start. And it just got better and better throughout the whole experience. Um, You really... They, the characterizations are great, you know, his mother and father are really, you know, thing. that's like really, that's, that, that's what got me feeling throughout the whole movie was the, uh, was the Atlanta and the, uh, I can't remember his father's name. Um, John. Yeah, you know, that relationship. John, John, John Curry. John Curry. All right. I, I only know him as, uh, Django. I should have called him Django. <laughs> um, okay. But, uh, well, I'm I'm gonna give my first hot take of the night though, and uh, I may get some oohs and ahs at this, or or I may get hung up on. I don't know. But since I'm hosting, uh, I I have the I have the freedom to say this. Uh, Tamura Morrison's role as John Curry is far and away his best role, far and away better than his role as Django Fett or any of the clones. I'm not gonna disagree with you. I I, I, no, no, I no loved his story arc in this movie. I loved that he was just a, a simple dude taking care of his lighthouse, and life collided with him in the form of Atlanta, and they they fell in love. They had a kid. He had a life, and then that life was taken from him, and yet he remained loyal to her throughout the course of all the trials and tribulations. He raised a good kid who turned out to be a hero and he, he got rewarded for it and, and got his woman back, you know, like it, it's probably one of the most full circle stories that we've got in this whole movie. And it's definitely one of the, the more complete and satisfying stories for Tim Morrison in general. Like, the only other thing I know him as, like, he's done the voice of Boba Fett in the Battlefront games, and he was Django in Attack of the Clones, and he was the voice of Moana's father in Moana. Uh-huh. That's really all I know him from. I know that he's got other roles, obviously, but I really, really enjoyed John Curry in Aquaman, probably one of my favorite characters, just because of his story arc. It was awesome. Yeah, it's 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 really kind of the heart of the movie is the you know, their relationship and you know them. I don't think it's a spoiler to say like you know she's it's in the trailer and they jump right into it. That's I, that's why I also appreciate about this movie. Like in the first ten seconds, you have you know John Curry meeting Atlanta and like you know that's cool. Like there's no lead up. It's just like boom, you're into it. This is the story. This is these characters. And, you know, and it's it, it draws you in. And so I was completely invested in that and then getting to know Aquaman himself, which was so great. I mean, Jason Momoa is great on his own, but as this character and this, you know, you know, uh, he's he's just he's just fantastic in this movie. And he gets a great arc. He gets great characterization, um, you know, really well acted, really well scripted. Um, and that's what I can say about the whole entire movie, really. It, you know, all of the roles are really well cast. They're really well acted. Um, really fantastic. Just all around a great cast that holds this whole film together. 
They really do. And and I think that kind of goes off of what you may have been alluding to a little while ago, Sage, is the pairings that we got in this film were really intentional and really well done because let's let's be honest, when we watched Justice League, Jason Momoa looked a lot like a supporting character. He he was the comedic relief. And I, I for one, was not sure about giving him his own movie because I didn't know if that comedic relief characterization was going to work in a feature-length film. I really didn't. But then you pair him with people like Tim Morrison. You you pair him with people like Amber Heard, who plays Mira. You pair him with, uh, with, with his brother when they're fighting each other. You know, you've got all these different pairings that he's up with, and every group that he's put into he feeds off of the other character really really well yeah i mean i think when you have guys like uh willem dafoe patrick wilson uh nicole kidman even dolph lundgren's in this movie um yeah i like i still can't sit here and say jason momoa is absolutely a lead actor and and could do 10 of these with no with very little supporting help I wouldn't believe it. Still, I wouldn't believe it. But they did such a amazing job by utilizing his range and being uh, casted alongside the uh, list of actors and actresses you just mentioned. Uh, the movie, like, never you never get a scene in the movie where it's like, oh, well, this is cringeworthy and this pair doesn't work. It always works. Every frame of the movie works because of the way they're paired together, and it's it's really. Uh, believable and awesome, and one of my favorite parts of the movie. Well, I want to I want to talk about one of my favorite parts, and we're going to go through the chronology a little bit here. Although we are kind of short on time, so we may jump around a little bit here and there. Um, but one of my favorite scenes was the opener because you, it's the one that kind of helps set the tone, and it ended up proving to be a pretty big part of the movie overall. Was the yeah. the fight aboard the submarine? where, you know, one of the antagonists, who we later finds out goes by the name of Manta, um, you know, we we uh, we see his pirates take over a submarine, and then we see Aquaman step in and kick butt and take names, and then we have a one-on-one sequence in the torpedo bay. Like, that kind of choreography and that kind of creativity must have taken a long, long time to come up with. Because you've got really, really tight, confined spaces on a submarine. So you've really got to maximize the space that you've got. And they did that with the hand-to-hand combat and the control room and the torpedo bay. Like, everything about that sequence was so well organized from a like a, like a choreography and, and fight sequence perspective that I was very, very impressed that they were actually able to use a submarine the way that they did. Yeah, and I also want to give a quick shout-out to... Uh, it's funny you mentioned this, actually, before I saw the movie. was uh, Michael Beach, who played Pike in The 100. Yes. He came back, and glad to see him. Great actor. He is. Great at playing, great at playing a bad guy, and he's great in this. Didn't get a whole lot of screen time, but, I mean, his... You know, that whole thing. I guess we're into spoilers now, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're in the spoiler mode now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm fixing to spoil something, guys. So if you haven't seen the movie, you know, this is like first 10-minute stuff, so it's not a big deal. But, you know, the, the, the you know, Manta's father dying, like, that's a huge thing. And I think the, the whole sequence is great, 
But I think it's a great character moment for Arthur, I think, that you have this heroic dude doing what I think a very human thing, a very kind of like logical thing that a lot of people may make the same choice, which is like he's fighting these guys and we're always used to the hero doing the heroic thing. Yep. He's going to help the bad guys because they're distressed. And he turns around and he's like, nah, screw you. You're the bad guys. Like, you killed innocent people. It's a great line, but you know it's going to come back to haunt Arthur. And you know that you can't help but feel sorry for these guys, even though they're a-holes who came in and took over a submarine and killed people. Like, you still can't help but feel remorse for this guy for losing his father. And he's the bad guy, but ultimately you kind of understand where he's coming from the entire movie. Yeah, of course he wants to kill Aquaman. Like, you know, Aquaman was kind of a douchebag to him, you know, even though, like, he was kind of justified too. So it's like, I love the dynamic there that it's a great character for a moment for Arthur, and ultimately it comes back to bite him in the ass, and it's something that he understands that, hey, I made the wrong call there. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the really cool things that I like about this movie in general is the antagonists are very relatable and believable characters exactly you know you're you're looking at somebody like manta who's looking to get revenge for the loss of his father and you know he he has several opportunities to do so over the course of this movie but then you also take a look at king orm who has lived in atlantis his whole life and wants to do what he thinks is best for his people and is trying to you know be a ruler but he's got this half brother that keeps getting in the way and he sees him almost like a nuisance to a certain degree. But that nuisance ends up proving to be, you know, the better ruler in the end. But it just takes a lot of crazy adventures and a lot of really crazy moments to get there. But Orm's character being a relative and being somebody who's ambitious, he wants to become Ocean Master, you know, he, he wants to not just be the king of Atlantis, but he wants to be the king of the ocean, which, when you think about it, is actually a pretty big deal because the ocean covers over 70% of the earth, you know? So yeah. when, when you've got that kind of control and you've got an army of that size and that power, yeah, you're pretty damn strong. And so, you know, there there's just some really compelling antagonistic characters in this movie. A lot more convincing to me, than somebody like Steppenwolf was, than, than somebody like Lex Luthor was. I, I didn't care for this, this uh, universe's version of Lex Luthor. I did not care for uh, the, the two antagonists that were brother and sister in Suicide Squad. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't care for them. I wasn't convinced that they were like true threats to the Earth. If you bring in Superman, he's taking care of them in about two punches. So, yeah. you know, this guy seems like a pretty legitimate threat. And that was that was one of many things that I enjoyed about this. I, I've got to have a, a set of characters that I can get on board with, both protagonists and antagonists. And I got both with this movie. I just want to... Uh, yeah, oh, it, sorry, yeah. Ben. Go ahead, uh, no, go ahead. I just wanted go to ahead. go back to your comment about uh, Michael Beach for a second. That, you know, the role was really small, quite frankly. So they could have casted anybody in... And instead, they made sure to get, again, the right person for the part uh, to add, you know, greatness, in my opinion, to that scene, to make that scene 
even more emotional and more believable. I mean, I know him from Sons of Anarchy, and I thought he was fantastic on there. I've never seen the 100, but it seems like this guy brings quality, and that's what you want. You don't want to just, you know, throw it in and put whoever in there for the uh, you know, four or five minutes he was on screen. But you know, they they did a wonderful job casting this movie, and it and it showed even for that short amount of time. Yeah, it's funny. I think that whole scene almost plays their the father and son are kind of the stars of those scenes. Like, they're the ones that first show up, and Aquaman's kind of the antagonist. He comes in, he takes out all their guys, he stops them, and he dooms one of them to die, and then just leaves. And, like, Aquaman's saving the day, but also, like, he's the bad guy in that situation. And it shows kind of the, you know, the ruthlessness of, of Aquaman at this point in his life. Um, and it's a great characterization to where you have him set up. And I heard people complain before I even saw this movie, like, oh, yeah, you know, Black Manta isn't in it a whole lot. Like, I thought Black Manta was, like, a really good part of this movie. Like, he had, he, he was in the background a lot, but, like, he had his part to play. And he comes back later on this movie in a great way. And then they ultimately set him up, of course, for the sequel later on in the post-credits. But, like, really well done characterization, really, really well woven into the plot. Okay, so I've got I got a couple of manta related questions for you guys while we're on that subject because mm-hmm. you you were talking about the scene that was like a great father son moment. I for one was confused about the use of the grenade. In the moment, the first time I saw it, it looked great. It's great visuals. It forces his son to get away from him, get out of there, that kind of thing. But then we learn that they're using that sub to disrupt Orm and Narius, while they're meeting at the Council of Kings to discuss, you know, what they're going to do about the mainlanders. Narius doesn't really want to do anything until his hand is forced by that submarine, which Orm needed intact. Why use a grenade in the torpedo room when you need the submarine intact to perform your next mission with it? Did... Did it destroy the submarine? It didn't destroy it, but Orm complained about how it was barely usable. See, I just now got the fact that they used that submarine, that same submarine, to attack the the council. Like, and then there was a lot. Of, there's a lot of ex- explanatory dialogue in there that I know I missed a few things, but like. I don't feel like that was very well explained because I was confused at that point. Like, where does the submarine come from? Like, it makes sense now that you say that. Like, yeah, yeah. of course, it's the submarine from the start of the movie. But, like, it's kind of like there is is a disconnect there. And also, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he would. I mean, I guess, like, he's trying to save his son. He'll do anything, whatever. But, like, well, you know, how do they use the submarine afterwards? You seem like it would just blown up. So, yeah, that's my thought is maybe only Black Manta knew the purpose of the hijacking mission to begin with. And and maybe his dad thought it would be okay to send the ship down, but, you know, it, it, when he's using the stealth sub and he's up in the North Sea and the commandos come up and give him his gold reward, Orm shows up in, like, that watery hologram, and he says something to the effect of, the ship you provided was badly damaged, but it served its purpose. And so Manta was, was using the submarine to, to force everybody into forming like that alliance so that Orem could attack the surface dwellers. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would probably be like my one nitpick that I've got is, you know, why the grenade if you need the sub intact? 
because the sub actually plays a, a, a pretty big role in, you know, convincing Mira that she needs to uh, to go back up to the surface in order to um, to try and convince Arthur to come back. Actually, I think she's already gone by the time the attack happens because when she makes it back to Atlantis, um, who is it? Uh, Volko? Is that his yeah, name? Yeah, it's uh, Willem Dafoe's Willem character. Dafoe's character. I, why can't I find his name? Volko, yeah. Volko yep. um, tells her that he was there at the at the time of the attack and saw that it was uh, a human warship. So, I mean, it just, it just sets all the other gears in motion and, and gets things rolling. And then uh, then they decide to kind of strike back. They kind of retaliate a little bit, the ocean dwellers do. And Sage, I wanted to get your thoughts on this particular sequence, uh, just because I imagine I I, I, I I may be wrong about this. I, I may just be assuming things about you, but how how often do you frequent the coast? Uh, once, <laughs> once or twice. No, See, no, I like once ever, ever. Okay, okay. Well, then I, I made an incorrect <laughs> assumption about you. I apologize. But We're talking I don't like live... the, the ocean coast, right? I, I mean, any coast would be fine. Oh, well, then but... I live five minutes from one, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really matter to me, because I live, like, 400 miles from the nearest large body of water. If it's not a lake, then, you know, whatever. But the the tidal wave sequence, when he's driving his father home, and you see, like, a giant ship kind of come up out of the water as well. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe the CGI was a little too heavy there for me, but I, I'm just curious what your take was when you saw, like, not only a giant wave coming up towards the town and towards them, but, like, it almost looked like a destroyer, for crying out loud. It was a big ship. Yeah, it was like a big fishing ship or something. I, I thought it was military. I thought I saw guns coming off of it. Was, was I was I mistaken? I assumed I assumed it was just like a giant like uh, fishing boat, just simply because it's a fishing thing. But it could have been military because the whole thing was that they were throwing literally everything up out of the water. Mm-hmm. That was submarines, ships. I mean, they show up. They show a shot look like Miami or something, and there's a giant like. There's submarines and there's a, a, a uh, an aircraft carrier and it's just on land and like a pile of pollution as well. Which I I, I was I was surprised by that. I, I liked that that whole thing with like yeah they, you, you you pissed off the people in the ocean. <laughs> they're they're gonna throw your garbage back because you know we do have a garbage problem in the real world too. Um, but I was surprised by that. Like, can you imagine how many people that killed? Like. Doing that? Oh, like, yeah. Arthur, Arthur and his father like barely survived, and they're like in this tiny fishing village. Like you throw a wave, and, like if that happened, like in real life, I would be dead. Like, <laughs> no kidding. I live like you know, of just like a mile or two from you know, like a large body of water. So yeah, I'd be dead from the Gulf. Yeah, I asked the wrong person that question, didn't I? <laughs> oh well. Oh well. Oh, well. Um. So here's here's the thing. I I I don't know. Sage, have you seen the the original Star Trek movies? Any uh, of them? A couple of them, yeah. Okay. So this this may be a good question for you or it may just be another c- 
comment that I make off on my own. Um, after the tidal wave hits main, uh, Mira convinces Arthur that he needs to, to come and stop this war before it begins. He agrees to it, and he goes through a series of flashbacks as they're making their way to, um, to Atlantis. And so, so first, my, my first part of this question is actually for both of you guys. When you entered Atlantis, when, when you see the, the, the bridge and the superhighway, and then you actually make it into Atlantis, what other movie vibes did you get? Because I got several during that sequence of about five minutes there. Ben, what kind of vibes did you get on the approach to Atlantis and the entrance into it? I I think the obvious one is Thor and approaching Asgard with the whole you know the giant the bridge big bridge and stuff like that um and you can even like I I you could you could draw comparisons to to Black Panther and and Wakanda too I think because it's so whole... such a secretive location that kind of thing Right. I mean, and there's a lot of, like, parallels between Black Panther and this movie. You know, some are not so, you know, it's not, like, totally, you know, obvious, but, like, you know, obviously, um, you know, you have the, the whole person wanting to be king or needing to be king and some another person trying to take over and stuff like that. Like, it's it's pretty, you know, it's it's out there. But, uh, yeah, the, the, a lot of the visuals, I, I, I liked those visuals, but, you know, it's a bit over the top sometimes, but I, I, I like the fact this movie was over the top at times. So I'll extend it into TV series cuz I'm oh. I'm I'm trying I'm trying to jab you in this one particular area, Mr. Star Wars. Oh. Was there a particular TV series that you got some uh some feelings from when you saw them enter into Atlantis? Are we are we talking are we talking uh Ryloth? I I'm not talking Ryloth. I'm okay. What could what could he be talking about? Uh, ta- what could Tatooine, perhaps? No, no. Nah, nah. Tatooine is is when we're out on the Sahara a little bit later in this film. Yeah, I I I got. I know I the got, one you're talking I about, got, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> you may as well say it because I'm clueless as usual. It's Mon Cala. That's it. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. The, the Mon Calamari world, the water world that we experience in, what was it, season four of the Clone Wars? Yeah, that was season four opening. Holy smokes. It was as if Mon Cala had been brought to life for me. Like, you've got the, the jellyfish that have so many different blue and pink neon colors coming off of them. You've got people that ride on manta rays and sharks and seahorse dragons and things like that. Like, oh my gosh, my imagination was on fire during that sequence. And Sage, you I don't know if you caught this one or not, but the bridge that enters into Atlantis, the one way in, one way out kind of thing, all of those vehicles clumped together reminded me a lot of the futuristic superhighways they show us in the Blade Runner series. Uh, actually, that was one of my comparables for uh, uh, this part of the movie was uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. When you're yep. uh, when you're first going in and the visuals, it's uh, you know there's actually a few comparisons in this movie. Uh, that part you know hits Blade Runner twenty forty nine. 
but uh, my favorite underwater parts are when they're in like the non-heavy CGI. I mean, it's all CGI, but the the less <laughs> the less bright areas uh, where you get the awesome rock structures and you know it has a real uh, you know um, oh the the anglerfish or uh, prehistoric um, vibe to it and uh, even a little like Game of Thrones, honestly, with the the, the underwater structure of uh, some of these places. My my favorite part of the underwater stuff was actually where they would, like, when Mara would use her powers to, like, create air bubbles. Yeah. And, like, my my favorite thing about it was, like, they go into, like, they sneak into, um, you know, Atlantis, and they go down, and they go to the shipwreck, which is really cool, like, a, like, like, taking advantage of, like, okay, this is stuff that would just naturally be on the bottom of the sea, of course, and... They go in, and they, you know, Valko's in there, and they go to meet him, and they've created this air bubble around the ship, and they go in, and it's dry. And I'm like, oh, I'm cynically going, well, okay, of course they're going to do this, because, like, they want to have this big talking scene. And, you know, maybe they want to save a little time and money not having to animate hair and all this kind of stuff for people underwater. They can just have this scene where it's dry. They're in normal circumstances. And then William Defoe is like, "Oh yeah, well we created this air bubble because it's it 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 produces like people being able to hear us and sense what we're doing, and also keeps the animals out." And I'm like, "That makes so much sense. Like that is brilliant." Well, and it also <laughs> like, it's so, also like a classism kind of thing because they said only the highborns can breathe both air and water. Yeah, yeah. So that's so, why you've got the soldiers yeah. coming in with full above water armor on because if you're not highborn you can't live in that environment yeah so when yeah, it, it, it i'm sorry i don't know what separates i don't know what separates highborns i don't know what makes people highborns and not highborns because like at first i thought um patrick wilson i can't remember his name um i thought he was i thought he couldn't breathe out of water but apparently he can um because he does in the end but uh, but most of the soldiers, of course, can't. I think I think he just chooses not to. To be honest, uh, maybe so. I, th- I think Orm's just kind of in a place where he's like, I don't have to go to the surface yet, so I'm not going to. Ha <laughs> ha. So yeah. Also, fun fact that I just learned today that I was watching uh, Mr. Sunday movies is breakdown because I didn't see the movie right off the bat. Normally speaking, I, I forget about those things after. Um. They actually, the design of the characters, of course, you know the original like design of Aquaman is this blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. And, of course, Orm is blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and that's intentional. He is modeled to look like the original Aquaman. And huh. Aquaman is designed in opposite of that. So basically, Orm is playing kind of the part of the original Aquaman, whereas you're getting a new take on the character with Jason Momoa. And it's a take that I'm totally okay with, because it makes sense that the the king of the waters would be an islander. Like, right. It, I mean, it, 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 there really wasn't any conflict in my mind for that kind of a choice whatsoever from the beginning. We have, we have enough blonde-haired, blue-eyed heroes. Yes. We do. Yes, and it, it doesn't bode well for me should I ever try and break into the movies. 
telling you, telling you. But Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, yeah, just yeah, yeah, just they they ruined it for all of us, man. <laughs> I'm never, I'm never gonna be, I'm never gonna be like that. Um, but there's another movie vibe that I got from this. I'm, I'm going to be listing off a lot of different vibes that I got, and I'll probably try and list as many of them at the end as I can because I got so I'm, many different references. I've got a few myself from later on in the movie, So too. many, so, so many. But this safe house that we keep going back to, the place where the big uh, reveal about the trident uh, of King Atlan is described, the, the commandos in the fight scene, he gets taken from there to be taken before King Orm, all that stuff. Sage, that safe house, I I haven't seen the movie in a while, but that safe house gave me a lot of vibes of the uh, wrecked ship that Khan is living in in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, that you're right. It does kind of have that vibe. I I I don't I, I, I like I said I haven't seen that movie in a while, but the the isolation and the 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 broken down nature of it and it's basically like Wrath of Khan in, in reverse because Khan's ship is down in the desert whereas this one is down underneath you know the bowels of Atlantis but Wrath of Khan was one of many references that I got uh, from from just subtle creativity and I can't help but imagine that that was intentional. I'm going to mention this now. I know it's later in the movie but I know I'm going to forget to mention it. Um, of course, they've been very open. I think James Wan specifically has talked about how the movie was heavily inspired by not only Indiana Jones, but uh, Romancing the Stone. And I- I'm not the only person who's seen Romancing the Stone here, am I? Uh, you might be. I don't know. Sage, have you seen uh, uh, it? No, not me. How is that possible? Everyone else has seen every other movie but me. <laughs> One for the record books and- here, folks. I've seen it. I've seen it like probably a half dozen times. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> a movie that Ben a... Hart has seen that the other two hosts have not seen. That is a rare it's a, find. So it's, it's a Michael Douglas Indiana Jones ripoff movie. It's great. I'm always up for Michael it's Douglas. Good. So yeah, yeah. It's it's seriously seriously. It's it's a good movie. It's really good. It's got Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas. Danny DeVito is the the villain, and there's lots of adventure and jungles, and it's it's crazy. It's good. But uh, and you obviously and you'll see that movie if you watch that you'll see some of Aquaman in that. Um, and what's funny is, of course, you kind of when you're going when they go to the desert and they're in the temple. Of course, you get some major Indiana Jones vibes. And but where I got it was later on in the movie when they go to the the trench and they're fighting off the monsters. There's a point where they're having the flares and. They're like, oh, they're from the depths they can't see. So they're waving the flares in the gut thing's faces. I'm like, oh, this is totally Raiders with the, you know, waving the torches at the snakes. Like, that's what the vibe I got. Oh, really? Because the vibe I got from that sequence was Jurassic Park. <laughs> well, just after that scene, they got some Jurassic Park themes. with the They, they had the pteranodons. Like, they got to the center of the earth. That's true. And I'm like, holy crap, it's Jurassic Park. Okay, so, I was freaked out. So the other vibe that I got from that was also the old um, rendition, like like the movie remake of Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what like, it was. Like, that's what you expect when you make it to the center of the earth. So, yeah, I mean, that was also, there. Yeah. The, I think Orm was riding on a Mosasaurus, so there's a Jurassic World entendre for you. 
Oh yeah, I didn't even I didn't even think about the fact that there was some prehistoric <laughs> uh, sea creatures in there in that battle. Dude, that's cool. I geeked out during the Council of Kings when Orem's uh, company was riding on the backs of great white sharks. Like, oh my God. holy crap! Holy, holy crap! Volko was riding on a hammerhead. And Orm was on a Mosasaurus, and the rest of the company was on Great Whites. Like, that was one of my biggest geek-out moments of the whole film. I think the best part about that is they took the time to make them look good, too. Like, oh, that could have yeah. been very cheesy yeah. and very bad. Like Extremely Sharknado. Easy. No, it's very possible, right? And they took the time to make it look high quality, and it sells you on the movie more. I, I really, really quick, I just have to preach on something before I forget it. Just on a macro level of looking at the stylistic choices they chose in this movie and the the whole the 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 set design, the costume design, all of it is so over the top, and all of it is so comic booky. And it's like, and like you look at if you look at the comic book version of Orm, like he looks exactly the same. Same with Black Manta. Same with pretty much Aquaman's costume, like, and Mara, and all he's got, like, they're ripped straight out of the comics. They they take no, like, qualms with, like, using and, and taking from the source material and just doing stuff just as it appears. And it's it creates this, like, these just craziest designs you've ever seen, that you've ever seen on film, really. And it's great. And I'm glad that they embraced, I think that's the strength of this movie, is that it is so out there. It is so like it's just insane, especially with like people riding sharks and 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 at one point Aquaman rides a giant seahorse, and because that's right out of the comics too. And like they do so many things, and it's unapologetic about being a comic book movie. And we were just talking about Spider Verse last week about how that movie was so comic booky and like literally was made to look like a comic book. This one was course photorealistic but still kept that comic book feel and wasn't like oh we got to redesign this to make it look like real like no this is just how it is so that was one of my biggest like praises of this movie is that it's so it looks great i mean the cg you know some of it i mean i i get it like you know atlantis is maybe a bit over the top it's 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 really crazy at points um and the end battle is is really intense but i think Overall, I was way more impressed than I thought it would be with the visuals. I speak. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Zach. No, go ahead, Sage. I, I, I'm curious what you've got to say. It might, I, it might be along the lines of what I've got. Well, it's it's a little bit off of where we were. I just wanted to throw a bit of a hot take here, and uh, I gotta say, the relationship between uh, Mira and uh, Aquaman, uh, the on-screen chemistry is so there. Uh, it's not you know, cringeworthy. It's it's very comedic at times. They play really well off one another that I would go as far as saying it's easily the best uh, on-screen chemistry between a couple in the uh, the new DC movies. And uh, that includes Superman and Lois Lane. Like, well, yeah, uh, because Amy Adams looks like she doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Because she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, let's be frank, I don't think any of them do. Seems that have, way. Have anyway. you seen? <laughs> have you seen her in Arrival? Like her role not. in Arrival compared to her role as Lois Lane is like night and day. 
You can tell that she wanted to be part of a rival. You can also very blatantly tell she is not interested in being Lois Lane anymore. I don't even, I mean, this is off topic. I don't see Lois Lane when I look at her at all in any way. But they're going to have to recast her too. I think she said she's out. Uh, Seriously, she said she's out of the DCEU. Cavell, gone. Affleck, gone. Amy Adams, gone. That's why they're doing... Hopefully Jesse Eisenberg, gone. That's why they're doing Aquaman. Yeah. I'm just saying. Aquaman is the new MVP of this series. Dude. He, he really is. Okay, I... This is this should have been the first movie they did. Be honest, I, though, did you think you were going to say one. that six months ago? Because I didn't. I was no. ready for this to no. be a disaster. No. Because, because I, the DCEU's reputation precedes it for mediocrity. It's just they tried... And I understand the whole idea. I understand... What they were trying to do, and I don't want to turn this into a harp fest because I think we've all said our piece on or our grievances on DC countless times, and they're finally doing something right. So I want to praise them for that. But like, they really should have, they could have done like Aquaman and Wonder Woman. Those should have been the first two instead of, I understand the reasoning for starting with Superman, but like, come on, like, save it and, and imagine. You know, imagine the the whole idea behind, like, what if we're at this point in the, the DCEU and we're getting excited because they're mentioning Batman and we haven't seen him yet. Are they mentioning Superman? And we haven't seen him yet either. And it's awesome. But now it's like we're tired of both of those characters. And we want to see something new. And that's sad, but also at the same time, it's like they have something great here with Wonder Woman, with Aquaman. Two great films with great characters, with great interesting stories and interesting side characters to them that they can really build on, and they've made, turned Aquaman, aqua frickin' man, this dude who's been a joke on the internet for how many years, he's now the most badass superhero you've ever seen, and he's got this depth to him, and this great actor behind <laughs> him, and great writing. <laughs> Did you just say what Aquaman? <laughs> he said Aquaman has depth to him? Oh, shut up. <laughs> and with that... I'm done ranting. <laughs> oh man, I love your rants though because you're you're 100 percent right, dude. You you are 100 percent right. Um, I tell you what though, we're we're getting close to the end of the program, but we've got a couple of things that we need to do first. So let's hit the pause button for now. At the end of this tangent, we'll pick up a couple more in just a second. We are going to push the pause button and go to a brief program identification and commercial break. And we'll see you on the flip side as we wrap up our discussion of Aquaman. is Sage from the Night Force Media Network, and I'm here to tell you about our new show, The Fandom Cantina, and why you need to tune into it. Also here to talk about it is, um, uh, oh yeah, right, it's Mondo. Wait, 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 so you think I got like an afterthought? Let no, me tell no, you but... something, okay? 
you act like I don't know anything about Star Wars I, I and the Force that. or uh, or other movies. I'll have you know, I was a Movie Pass subscriber, okay? And I subscribed Wait, to but... A List. And you act like I don't know anything about television. You no. know, like all those fancy shows and video games. Let me I, tell you something, I man. I have beaten fifty video games this year alone, and 50? you don't think that I like making odd numbered list countdown lists up? Oh, uh, you are you are sadly mistaken, sir. So yeah, that's what our show's about. You can catch us 10 p.m. Eastern Wednesday nights, Mixler's Night Force Media. See you then. We are back. We're going to be wrapping up our discussion of Aquaman. We tried to go in chronology, but there's just too much to talk about. I feel like we could do like five episodes. <laughs> we on this we one movie. really like, could we, because we got s- and we. It's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. We have to say, I think, like, and that's great. I'm glad we're not harping on how terrible this movie is. Thank I'm glad we got something to be excited about. Absolutely, absolutely. So what we're gonna do then is we're gonna we're just gonna pick like our favorite couple of scenes that we that we really enjoyed, so that we can harp on those things that really really stood out to us. I mean, Atlantis was one of those for me. Uh, The fight in the Ring of Fire was a really great sequence. Uh, The fight in Sicily was really cool. So, uh, Sage, I'm gonna I'm gonna yield the floor to you. What were let's let's say two of your favorite sequences from this movie and why? Um, they're really close together. Uh, The first, uh, or I guess, the one would be the the consolation winner for me. The runner-up would be the uh, fight between him and Matt, and I think they're in Italy or some some place that looks rather exotic. It's I think they said it's Sicily. Is it okay? Well, I mean, it looks incredible. The visuals are great. Yeah. Uh, the fall down the uh, the mountainside there, the uh, the battle on the rooftop. It just it's really cool. And some of the scene or interactions you get with just like the uh, common citizen as it's going on. It's funny too, but my favorite part of the movie is when they—it's uh, not underwater at all. They—they they jump out of the um, uh, the plane that's carrying them without the parachutes and land in the sand, and just that whole sequence to the point where they go down and uh, they get the key thing to open. Uh, it felt more like Indiana Jones than the last Indiana Jones movie did altogether, and that was awesome. Oh, shoot. I loved that. <laughs> That's a hot take for you. That's a spicy take right there. Yeah, that is a really spicy take, but I don't entirely disagree, because, you know, even if there had been, like, a like a comedic relief or, or something like that in Indiana Jones, I could totally see somebody being like, ha, I could have just peed on it. Like, like, that's a line that's been around since the... 
since like the first trailer came out. And so it wasn't like a big surprise when it happened. But after all the glitz and glam and spectacle and whatever that we've seen, you then get a little zinger like that. That's just so, so funny. And to follow up your, your take on Sicily, um, I got some Indiana Jones vibes from that as well. I, I got, um, what was it? Raiders of the Lost Ark when they're up in, uh, North Africa and they got some of those, those chase sequences that are happening in the crowds and stuff. It was like that only on the rooftops of those locations instead of in the streets. And it's, it's just so out there. It's so out there and yet still fits within the confines of this film. I really, really admired the way that they were able to put all that together. And then Aquaman still takes the time to, to turn over to the, to this one little woman whose house is now completely destroyed. And he's like, excuse me. Like, come on, man. You're going to, you're going to say, I'm sorry for this. Oh my gosh. But yeah, those are, those are two really, really great sequences. Ben, what about you? What are, what are two of your top sequences from, from Aquaman? I think I think both of my sequences involve Black Manta. I think I my 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 second place I'd give it to the opening sequence in the sub. I thought it was really well done. You know, it's it's just like the whole visuals of him like just taking a submarine up to the surface just cuz like and all that and his whole fight like it establishes like how powerful he is. And then to flip that on its head, you bring Black Manta back, and I think my favorite scene is the scene in Sicily where they're running across the rooftops and stuff like that, and Black Manta actually is able to injure Aquaman. And there's actually, instead of just, and that's a trope with a lot of superhero movies, it's basically two indestructible people punching each other, like, nonstop. Like, I'm looking at you, Black Panther. Like, uh, uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. Whereas there's no stakes. It's just like, oh, I guess one of them's just going to get tired at some point and they're going to stop. Like, you're, you're, you're invested in what's going on because you're like, this guy could legitimately kill Aquaman. Like, he just freaking burned him. Like, he could kill him. And he's got, like, the weaponry to do it. So it's like, it's like you're on the edge of your seat. And then on top of all that, you have what's going on with Mara. Again, Mara, great, like, great character all around. Like, she does some really badass stuff, and that whole sequence with her running across the rooftops, and then it's, like, on two levels, and they're, like, running through people's houses and, like, jumping through walls and across, like, ravines. Like, it's crazy, and it's another part of this movie that's, like, we've never really seen anything like that before. Like, it's, it's, it's unique to this movie. It's something that, like, they really did a good job of establishing the visuals of this movie to be something that, you know, and that's anything you really want. It's like, show me something different, guys. And Aquaman does that. It's not this tropey superhero movie. It's about showing you some really cool, interesting stuff. That's very true. That's very true. James Wan's creativity is evident at just about every turn. And that's one of the cool things, one of the things that I really admire about this. Let's talk about that weaponry for just a second here, because it's got to be like the greatest super soaker of all time, pretty much. (laughs) You put water into this son of a and it comes out plasma. It's a plasma cannon that is never going to run out of resources because water is literally over 70% of the planet. You just put a few drops in there, boom, you got plasma cannon. Holy crap. And then... Did you notice that towards the end of that fight sequence, Black Manta pulls out the dagger that his dad gave him, and he's able to use it to stab Arthur with? 
previously yeah. previously he used a blade on the sub to try and stab him and it just stuck to his chest but his dad's dagger was able to pierce the skin i can't help but wonder if his dad at one point or his granddad rather had had contact with Atlantis and gotten his hands on some Atlantean steel. That's the only thing I can figure as to why that particular blade would be able to pierce Arthur's hide. I mean, that'd be the only explanation, really, because he, you know, human weapons can't hit him. So, I uh, it's it's really the only thing that I can think of. I mean, so so here's the deal. I'm really really conflicted personally because I enjoyed pretty much everything in this movie. Like, there's very, very little that I would actually complain about. But I, I think two of my favorite sequences kind of happen near the end, and that's probably a good thing, because we probably need to, like, wrap up the discussion and, and go towards our, our planet scores anyway. I really, really enjoyed the final battle, where you've got three out of the four water kingdoms attacking attacking the brine. It's one of the largest scale battles I have ever seen. And to try and yeah. put all of that underwater is doubly difficult. And you've got creatures of all different shapes and sizes. And you've got people that look like mermaids fighting people that look like crabs. You've got giant squids and sharks and seahorses and and these giant, giant ships that are all floating into battle. And then Arthur shows up in full Aquaman garb, which looks pretty badass, by the way. Like, it took a long time for him to finally put it on, but when he did, it looked really, really cool. Um, when he finally shows up with the Karathan and the Trench Creatures at his command, it, like, showed the power of this trident that they've been talking about throughout the course of the entire movie. It shows off the power of that trident and exerts his influence in a really tough situation. Like, that whole sequence was so, so cool. Especially the fact that two brothers fight each other. You know, you really, really want your hero to win, but at the same time, you really, really don't want to see two brothers going at it. I mean, yeah, uh, uncle and nephew in The Lion King kind of had, like, a similar resemblance, maybe. But I thought it was really, really interesting that even though Arthur won, he didn't kill his brother. His brother was literally asking to be killed. He wanted yeah. to, like, accept his defeat, accept his fate, and then his mother shows up. His long-lost mother. And Nicole Kidman, oh my gosh, she stole this scene, guys. She stole this effing scene like you would not believe. And it was gorgeous it was beautiful there was some writing elements that helped everything kind of come full circle because uh when uh when when what's his name i keep forgetting his name when Volko got arrested uh orm said take him but make sure he has a view when Volko gets out and they arrest orm he says take him but make sure he has a view like there's all these different elements that are like culminating in this one sequence and it was so cool but I don't think there was any cooler culmination of this movie than the way that they finished it. You've yeah. got John with his yearly, daily trek down to the docks. She told him 20-something-odd years ago, 25 years ago probably at least, that she would return when it's safe and to meet her at the docks at sunrise. 
And for the last 25 years, he's been going down to the docks religiously, just waiting, hoping for her return. And you can tell that Tim Morrison's shoulders are kind of slumped in this end sequence. It's almost like he's resigned himself to this tradition and not expecting anything in return. And then he looks up at the end of the docks and the love of his life is standing there waiting for him. Oh my gosh, the way that it all came full circle was so, so beautiful. And the fact that it was almost like a role reversal, if you will. A lot of the cliche movies have the man going off to war and the woman has to pine for his return. And in this, it's like everything was turned on its head. And Tim Morrison is now the one that is silently keeping a vigil waiting for his love to come back. And Nicole Kidman obviously can take care of her damn self. She lived on that island for years. She fought off all of... Uh, all of the the guards and commandos at the beginning of the movie, you know, he, he wasn't the one saving her. She was the one saving her family and coming back to it eventually. And that sequence was one of the few that I just about broke down during because it was a beautiful finish to this film. We got everybody's story fleshed out, including Atlanta and John. To have them reunited at the end was just beautiful and to me felt like a picture-perfect way to close out this film. Can I just... I cried. I cried. Just so for the record. Go ahead, oh, I was tearing up too at the end. I was trying not to let my other half notice, but tears tears definitely ran at the end of that film. I never would have bet on that. But Zach pointed out how um, uh, Aquaman chooses not to you know, finish his brother off. Uh what did you notice about this movie that's a lot different than other movies? And even in terms of the sidekick characters is after Michael Beach's character uh, and, and the grenade situation, nobody dies. Exactly. You would expect, I kept, I kept like cringing when anything would like happen. I was afraid that Orm would just straight up murder Valko because he betrayed him. It didn't happen. He survived. Like, nobody died. Like, it wasn't, like, just for shock value. Um, it was just like, hey, like, everybody survived, and people learned something, and, you know, Aquaman learned something, or maybe learned something, and they're going to be better about it, and they didn't have to die. Like, that's... I, I love that about it. Well, it, here's the thing. A lot of these movies are so filled with needless death, and we got a really good story with really compelling characters without all of that excessive death you you don't you don't need deaths to like raise the stakes you really like, don't. one of my favorite one of my favorite like examples of that and this is one of my favorite examples now but like one of my previous examples of this was like captain america civil war remember on this podcast we're like okay deadpool who's gonna die in civil war and then like we come out of the movie like oh no one died <laughs> like literally no one died um so that was like, it's like, it's still like the stakes were there, you know, it was still like, you know, big things happening, but you didn't need people dying to, you know, sell the drama. There was still really important drama in Aquaman, there's still really high stakes, still really a lot of emotion, and you didn't need to say goodbye to any of these characters. And yes, like, even earlier on in the movie, um, I, I, when he was looking for his father after the car truck flipped, I'm like... Oh God! If you kill, if you kill Django, I swear to God, 
No, I was I was with you. Like I I wasn't sure how they were going to be able to to get him out of there. And then you discover that Mira's power is essentially water bending, and she's able to like remove it from his lungs. That was a really, really cool sequence that I wasn't expecting. And then it also helped you prelude to the water she extracts from his forehead uh, later on in the in the mm-hmm. film. But you're right. It was, it was just really, really well put together and really well acted. And so with that, I want to ask you guys, with such a great cast, did you have a favorite character, Ben? I, I feel like you might. I don't know about Sage. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Black Manta. I knew it. Even called it Black Manta was I, I think he really great characterization. I really liked his journey. I'm glad that like even down to like I expected them to just kind of show up and like give him his armor. Like it wasn't even that. Like he had to go on this journey and get this stuff, and he spends a lot of time like creating his armor and creating this this giant mask. And he's absolutely ridiculous. Like the costume is absurdly like stupid looking. But, like, it's awesome. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's straight from the comics. It's perfect. I love that they went the where they went with that because, like, it totally works. It works in this just insanely absurd, absurdly awesome movie. I'm with you. I'm uh, with you. Mine's probably Orm, to be honest. I think Patrick Wilson is amazing in this movie. I love that James Wan just decided, you know what, he's my lead and the Conjuring movies, and he's been in other stuff, too, where he's really good. Like, i seen a uh, Patrick Wilson, Liam Neeson train movie. I can't remember what it's called. I thought it was going to be terrible, and both of them make it great. And Oh, he's... The Commuter? Yeah, it, I think that's the one. Yeah, I, you'd have to check Patrick yeah. Wilson's in it. But uh, uh, I love everything Patrick Wilson does, but I've never really seen him... I mean, even now, I look at the movie, and you can easily say... Was he really like a villain, or can it be justified why he became that way? It, you know, he thought his uh, mom was, you know, capished, and uh... that's that's the best thing about the fact that she survived is that it it takes away that tension. Mm-hmm. Like it takes away like his whole reasoning behind what he does is that he blames Arthur for the death of his mom, and he, like now that you brought that character back, it it changes that part of that character. And now, going forward, Orm can let go of some of that. Uh, and, I mean, how can you not love Willem Dafoe? I mean, Dafoe's amazing uh, in everything he does. Very true. I love, like, Willem Dafoe is just a treasure. Like, you know, and he's been, like, this is, like, his second or third, like, big, like, comic book movie. He seems to really enjoy doing them. Like, I, I want to see him. I hope he comes over to the MCU one day because he would be, he's just, he's such an incredible actor. Uh, so if we're, if we're listing off a couple, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to give honorable mention to, to Amber Heard because you really don't have a solid movie if you don't have Mira playing off of Arthur the way that she does. Like the, the banter that goes back and forth between them, the way that she introduces him to Atlantean culture and he comes to embrace it to the point where he becomes king, even though he's constantly said he didn't want to be king he ends up accepting that role, and I feel like she played a heavy influence on it. But if I had to pick a favorite character, oh, geez, I I just, I really love the story between John and Atlanta. I feel like it's the one of the best love stories 
that I've seen. And like I said at the top of the show, it's Tim Morrison's best role. I think John Curry is my favorite character, honestly. I I love how loyal he is. I love how dedicated he is. I love how he says his superpower is out drinking his metahuman son. Like, he's got moments, and they make the most of those moments every at every turn. But, you know, I think that's the cool thing about this movie is from the smallest roles to the biggest, everybody is firing on all cylinders and does such a great job. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's that's totally it. They all the actors from the small roles to the large roles, they're all so great. While we're on the subject of roles real quick, do either of you guys know who the voice of the Carathin was? I know, I'm not saying. I don't. Sage? No, I have no idea. So I, I was really surprised by this because usually you get somebody like Scarlett Johansson, kind of like what they did with uh, Ka in The Jungle Book. You know, you, you get somebody that's kind of got like a semi-iconic but still mysterious voice. They got Julie Andrews to be the voice of the Karathan that guards the trident. Wow. And I was blown away by that. Mary I, I Poppins loved... herself? Mary Poppins herself and Fräulein Maria and the grandmother from the old uh, Princess Diaries movies. Like, I'm just disappointed that the, the giant monster in the middle of the battle didn't scream out, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! <laughs> <laughs> That might have been a bit too much, but there were a lot of references, and I'm going to get to those in a second. But we do need to get to uh, final thoughts and planet scores. And Sage, I know you're crunched for time, so I'm going to let you lead it off. Um, what What are your final takes on this movie, and what do you give it out of ten? Well, uh, you brought up Amber Heard, and uh, I remember sending you a voice message after I'd seen it, saying, uh, "Well, I might have a do on screen crush," and then getting like just evil red eyes stared at me <laughs> by my missus. Uh, oh. um, so I, uh, you know, she was really, really good in the movie and the movie, like it's not as, it's not big enough in my opinion, like in terms of the cast to be an ensemble. But if you were to classify it as an ensemble, it's the best casted DC movie uh, there's been yet. And I seriously hope that that's not James Wan's only film in the series we, we got to see him come back uh they could take a lot from his lead uh and uh i'd give this movie a nine out of ten i think that's a i think that's a fair assessment uh real quick before you sign off where can the folks at home keep up with you and your other programming if they want to tune into you or the two of us potentially down the line uh well i mean we have uh the Phantom Cantina on Wednesdays uh, usually launches around 9.30 Eastern. And we just talk about whatever's going on in the fandom. Like we talked about Spider-Man this week and uh, whatever happens in movies and gaming and TV. We we talk about and have some fun with for an hour. Uh, and uh, you can catch Star Wars Syndicate right after that, uh, which is more or less Star Wars Wastelands 2.0 with uh, all the original guys involved in some way or another. And uh, the one I'm most excited for, anyways, is the uh, the Call the Banners of Game of Thrones podcast coming out uh, February 11th, a 17 part miniseries. And there's uh, I think there's five of us involved in that, so we might have to get Ben to do some just random picks for us. But uh, yeah, check us out on Facebook www.facebook.com/slash Fandom Cantina. 
All right. Well, that uh, is going to be it for Mr. Giroux. We promised that we'd have him cut off at uh, midnight Easter time. But thank you for dedicating these last couple of hours to us, my man. It's always appreciated. And hopefully we have you back on the program real soon. I have to say, and it's one thing that really bothers me uh, with where many fandoms have gone uh, these days is no one can ever admit... um, when they're wrong about something, they get like a preconceived notion about a a movie before they've seen it, and they're just going to stick to it regardless of what they see on screen. I thought this movie yeah. was going to be terrible, and I thought it was one of the best movies of all of 2018, and uh, I can totally admit I was wrong, and I hope I'm wrong more often, and we get more great DC movies. And thanks for having me, boys. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, for me, it finished as the number four four movie out of all the films that I watched in 2018 and I saw 17 2018 releases so it it ranks really really high up there I I saw I I put my list out there a little bit after Christmas I put my when I when I realized I wasn't going to see any more movies during 2018 right (laughs) I went ahead and put my list out and I can't remember how how many I've got on there but it's a bunch and I saw I saw more movies in 2018 than I've seen ever in my life. Like <laughs> new movies, like it's just the way my life is now that I, I'm, I'm, you know, privileged enough to get out and, and see these movies when they come out. Yep. But like, um, Aquaman. Like, if you'd asked me, like, which one's gonna be better? Which one's gonna be like best received? Fantastic Beasts, Crimes and Grindelwald, or Aquaman? And you asked that question like at the start of 2018. Like, how would you answer that? I, I I easily would have said Crimes of Grindelwald. I, I'm. I would have said I would have said like, oh man, like that's got a great cast. I liked the, the first one. Like, you know, that's gonna be a great movie. And Aquaman. I mean, it's a DC movie, so probably not. Right. So it's probably just gonna. It's probably gonna you know do okay at the box office. It may even bomb, and nobody's gonna like it. And <laughs> look what happened. It's crazy, man. The this thing, this place is crazy because Crimes of Grindelwald finished seventeen out of seventeen for me. Like it, wow. it, it was probably the worst twenty eighteen release that I watched. Oh yeah, it's 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 at the bottom of my list too. It, it was, which is sad. Way it really down is. there, and and but like, th- there's like even there's like other movies on my list that like I didn't like as much as some other movies, but. Still, like none were like as as much disappointing as Crimes of Grindelwald, and I, I, I mean, I got some enjoyment out of that movie, but like ultimately, like it's just not good. It really wasn't, and that's unfortunate. But what is fortunate is that for every Crimes of Grindelwald we end up with, we get an Aquaman. <laughs> yeah, if you will. Yeah. So 2018 was a fantastic year. For movies, it really was. It, it was amazing. I mean, everything from Infinity War to Bird Box. I got so many good movies and happy surprises. I really, really enjoyed what we got in 2018, and I'm excited for 2019. But this this makes for a nice little transition. We kind of ease ourselves into January. Uh, Glass just released over this holiday weekend. I'm curious about how that's going to do at the box office. Uh, from yeah. what I've read, it's set to open for like a $50 million weekend or something like that, which isn't too bad for this time of year. But, uh, excuse me, let's talk about the box office from Aquaman really quick before I forget. Um, okay. It's opening weekend yielded almost $68 million domestically. Wow. 68 uh, over the about 4,100 different theaters in the States. 
it yielded 294 million domestic and the foreign totals was almost 744 million dollars wow it came out december 21st we are at january 18th it's been out for almost a month its worldwide totals are over 1 billion 37 million dollars and I think it is it is it not now the officially the top grossing DCEU movie? I would not be surprised. I I mean, I think Wonder Woman would probably be the only competition for it. Let, let me see. I think they've got a ranking. I'm on Box Office Mojo right now. I am too. I'm, what do you know? I'm trying, I'm trying to take a look. So it's only showing me the domestic grosses. I'm not yeah, I'm not seeing yeah. I'm not seeing total grosses. As far as domestic goes, it's actually fourth behind Suicide Squad, Batman v Superman and Wonder Woman. Which is Yeah, the yeah, the one I'm looking at has Dark Knight on top, Dark Knight Rises, which aren't in the DCU but whatever. And then you've got Wonder Woman, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, Aquaman. And this is it says DC Comics to- total grosses. It doesn't tell me what the thing is but yeah it's definitely different from your list well this but, is this is I mean, it's up there this is this is what we get for doing spontaneous internet searches <laughs> it just happens we don't we don't do all the research we can't we can't possibly do all the research before the show so sometimes it happens during the show who knows so suicide squad's total gross was 746 million so it did not do as well total batman v no. superman was 873 million so it did not do as well uh, how did Man of Steel do worldwide? Six hundred sixty-eight million. So right now it's ahead of all those. Wonder Woman, its worldwide was eight hundred twenty-one million. Mm. Aquaman is the first and only DCEU movie to make a billion dollars worldwide. Wow! So that's great. that should speak volumes about this movie. If Wonder Woman was so well received. Aquaman beat her out by a solid twenty-five to thirty million dollars, and it's not even out of um, theaters yet. Yeah, and and word of advice to DC and Warner Brothers: get James Wan to do Justice League Two. I would say two hundred million, actually two hundred and twenty million. I think I may have done that math wrong. I think I did. I'm a writing major, and I broadcast on the side. I'm not a math major, folks. Sorry. Oh, don't look at me for maths. I don't do the maths. No. But, no, no, thank you. But, uh, but yes, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. James Wan deserves all of these uh, future movies, uh, especially Justice League 2. Uh, I would be okay if we just turned the reins over to him and James Gunn for the entirety of the franchise. I would be down for that i'm just i'm just speaking my mind here um so let's get to our closing thoughts and planet scores we got a couple other things to do before we wrap up the night ben what's your take on this movie as a whole what did you make of it i think this movie is was surprisingly phenomenal really truly really just a great all-around movie really fun really whimsical really they they you know, hit on so many elements and use so many things, and you know the influence that this that this movie does, and the locations that they go to. I think it's just it really looks great, and I think it's 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 one thing that I that I really liked about it is that it kind of balances the the insanity and the craziness of um you know you have like 
it's really intense underwater when you go to Atlantis. Like, it's a lot to take in. But then they balance that out with, like, visiting other locations. You go to Italy, you go to the desert, like, and taking Aquaman out of his element, quite literally. Yeah. And putting him in the middle of the desert. Like, that's interesting. Like, it's almost... It's almost stupid it's so interesting. It's so clever in a way that, like, of course, that's really interesting, putting... Aquaman, the guy that can control water, take the water away from him and put him in the middle of the desert. But it just makes for this really interesting imagery, and you compare this... Like, I think it's really cool when movies can, like, establish themselves with... Establish each location as, like, its different color palette and its own interesting, like, look that can stand out, and you're going... You're this part of the movie it's kind of dark and in this part of the movie it's light and it's you it's drawing on those colors um one recent movie that uh didn't do so well with this was solo a star wars story like that movie was just dark all over and it it, it kind of struggled i think to kind of establish its different locations as looking different whereas aquaman was really well done in that sense so all that, long story short, bringing it back around to what I'm trying to say here is that Aquaman is great. It's a great-looking movie. It's a well-acted movie. It's a well-scripted movie. It's not perfect. I'm sure there are several flaws in this movie, but it's damn good, and we need to give it all the praise it can. You know, don't, you know, you know, you know don't ignore the problems, but also, you know, we did need to encourage WB, and obviously people are encouraging them to make more stuff like this because... It's made a freaking billion dollars. Right. Like, that's great. That's fantastic. That's hopefully encouragement to go, okay, do more of this. Maybe don't worry about Batman and Superman for a while. Just give us more Aquaman because that's what we love. And, like, as you said earlier, the characters are great. Everyone from, you know, his parents to Aquaman himself to the side characters, Willem Dafoe, was so well acted, so well done. And I think I, I personally am really looking forward to Aquaman, Aquaman 2, whatever it may be. Like, that's going to be an interesting thing to go off to. So, long story short here, I'm giving this movie a 9 out of 10. Great movie, two thumbs up. I want more. I I do too. I, I do too. <laughs> I, I, I That's why I go back and watch it again. Like I saw it in the theater again today, and I plan on seeing it a third time before it leaves the theaters. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of you. I just saw it for once the other day, and now I want to go see it again. So my problem is I tried to see if it was showing in 3D anywhere, and the closest place was like an hour away. That's the oh, only thing I haven't yeah. done. I've seen it in 2D, and uh, I'm pretty sure the screen I saw it on today might have been IMAX. So... The only thing I need to do is try and see it in 3D and see if, like, those color palettes and, and some of those creatures kind of jump out to me a little bit more. But I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to do that before it leaves the theater. So I may just have to settle for the, the movie tavern down the street just so I get to see it again. But uh, here's here's my final take. I, I've talked about the characters. I've talked about the fight sequences. I've talked about the visuals. What I'm going to talk about for the next minute or so is the... Um, the references that this movie makes to other movies while still maintaining its own integrity. That is a very rare thing for a, a movie to be able to do without bleeding too much into another franchise or another film and, and, and not seeming too hokey or deliberate. 
we've mentioned stuff like Indiana Jones before or earlier in the show. But let me just toss a few of these things out there to you. Mira comes to Arthur and tells him that he needs to take his rightful place as king. That is exactly the same thing that Simba is told in The Lion King. Oh, wow. The, the gateway bridge and the entrance to Atlantis, we talked about the Blade Runner vibes. I talked about the safe house reminding us of, of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The gladiator sequence is fought over the Ring of Fire. That is a deliberate Finding Nemo reference, another great aquatic movie that we've talked about here on the show. Uh, at one point, he, he's talking to Volko, and he says, You taught me how to fight, Cobra Kai. A Karate Kid reference. <laughs> and then when they're making it past border security, they escape in a whale, and he makes a Pinocchio reference. And he says later on that he got it in a movie. The Kingdom of the Deserters cavern that they find by accident looks a lot like the caverns from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And then the mm-hmm. chase scene through Sicily looks like Raiders of the Lost Ark. The fishermen, the tribe of fishermen that they try and uh, bring over to their uh, side of things, and Orm ends up killing their king to force the heir to declare for them. Those fishermen look like creatures straight out of the shape of water. The trench creatures from the, the deep reminded me a lot of the creatures from something like Stranger Things, the Demogorgons. Yeah. And then yeah. when you're pushing Orm near the the propeller during the final fight sequence on the ship, it looks a lot like what Indy did to the Nazi in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. There's so many different references. I didn't even talk about the, the way it looks like Mon Calamari from Star Wars The Clone Wars. It literally looks like Mon Cala brought to life. So there are so many different pieces that fit into this movie. And you can just tell that the creativity abounds as it tells its own story. And yet at the same time, you also get so many references to so many other movies that you're basically looking for these Easter eggs while you're watching the film. And it just adds to the enjoyment for me. I really, really love being able to look out for those things and help them enhance what's already a really great movie. Overall, overall, this was one of the best movies of 2018, and given how much I love Fish and how much I loved Aquaman as a kid and how many other references it makes to other franchises, I, I dare say that this may be a contender for my top five list of movies that I never say no to. Oh, wow. It, That's a top honor. It may dethrone something that I have had up there for a long time. I've had uh, The Empire Strikes Back. I've had Jurassic Park, The Dark Knight, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I think right now I've either got The Emperor's New Groove or Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl in there. And those are the ones that I'm considering dethroning and putting Aquaman in its place. Damn. I consider this a top, top movie, one of my favorites, and I can't wait to own the Blu-ray. And so I I, I do know that there are flaws with this movie. I, I made a complaint about a couple of them, and I do know that it's a bit of a CGI fest, but you know what? I don't care. I loved this movie. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and I'm actually going to go back-to-back weeks of giving a movie a 9.5 out of 10. Wow. Wow. Into the Spider-Verse and Aquaman were two of the best movies I saw in 2018. Honestly. I loved them to death, and now there's a really high precedent for the movies we talk about in the future to do a good job, because 
I don't give out 9.5s lightly. I don't. But no. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. So, there you go. That is amazing. Uh, before we wrap up our conversation of this franchise for the evening, I think it's only fitting that we hear from the director himself as he gives some thoughts about this movie and we've also got some other cast members that jump in and out usually we pull a quote from the film but because there's not a whole lot of those scenes out yet we're going a different route and going to do like a behind the scenes look uh we're going to give you a a short quote of king narius and uh king orn discussing things at the council of kings and then it's going to jump into a behind the scenes featurette where James Wan, the director, and several of the cast members discuss Aquaman, the film. So I'm going to stop talking, let them start talking. Enjoy tonight's Quote of the Night. Together, they were the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Now, set on Atlan's throne, shackled by archaic laws and politics, while the threat above us grows undeniable. Violence is always playing the surface. They will destroy themselves. Not before destroying us first. We have been hiding long enough. The time has come for Atlantis to rise again. For me, the most important thing is the story that I'm telling. Whether it's a scary set piece or a dramatic moment, it all comes down to the characters and if you care about them. Aquaman is very powerful, but what drives him comes from a very human place. His story resonated with me instantly. He's not accepted here, not really accepted here. Definitely could identify with that. I fell in love with the project and fell in love with Mira. She's no damsel in distress. She's a strong, badass, empowered superhero. With Aquaman, the trick, and also part of the fun, is designing a whole different world that we've never seen before. You're pretty much just limited by your own imagination. There's just a whole lot of magic on this project. Once they put all these things together behind James's vision, it blows my mind still. The appeal of it was to step into something else. You really are invigorated because of it. You get to experience all these amazing worlds. We haven't been under the ocean yet. This is our outer space. I keep going back to that inherent fascination that we have with the ocean. And if it turned on you. Just the sheer vastness and the mystery of it. There's still a lot we don't know. I've always known that I want to do an action movie. I get to be a big kid on the playground and cause trouble, blow things up. Your body is constantly working. You're doing judo, jiu-jitsu, fight choreography. After four and a half months of stunt training, six days a week, you feel pretty superhuman. I get to present Aquaman to the world in this really badass and cool way. We have never seen this on screen. And that's, that's the truth. You get to fall in love with the idea of what it's like to have these powers and be a kid. And that's fun for the family, it's fun for everyone. We want to create something interesting. We don't want the standard. 
James Wan can't do the standard. Any great superhero story should make you feel that you've learned something from these characters. And you yourself have the ability to do good. And you don't need a cape to be able to do that. The ability to do good and not need a cape to do it. I really don't think I could put it any better, James Wan. I, I feel empowered from this powerful superhero movie. You know, these, these powerful characters, super strong, and yet also super relatable. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. You, you, he, Arthur himself is like probably one of the strongest people on the Justice League. And yet he's so relatable. He's so down to earth in this movie. Like, you know, he really feel him in this movie, which is, which is great. There's a lot of great things about this movie. <laughs> and we've also got some really great people that help support this program here. A great uh, big shout-out to all of our patrons that help keep us afloat. Joey Mays, Katie Horn, Jake Damon, Rachel Perry, Dan Grievous, and Parker Ott. You guys are great, great contributors and great listeners of this program, have been for a long time. We appreciate and love your support, and uh, if you want to become a patron, get a shout-out on the show, get some exclusive offers, become a part of a, a really awesome chat where we discuss top fives and other amazing things, then uh, go ahead and visit patron.podbean.com forward slash IPC podcast. Uh, we're kind of in the works of revising what kind of benefits and exclusives we have to offer just to kind of revamp things for 2019. But uh, that should be up shortly, and in the meantime, if you feel like you can contribute a dollar a month, two dollars a month, every little bit helps us take care of things like our Netflix subscription so we can review movies and TV shows from Netflix. It helps take care of some of our movie tickets, and it takes care of our Podbean subscription. So the stuff that you guys do really does help us a lot, and uh, we would love to have more people join that team. So if you feel like that's for you, be sure to go check that out. Totally. All right, well, dude, we've got one more thing that we need to take care of tonight before we call it a night. I'm sure you know what it is, and I'm also pretty sure you know what the topic's going to be. Like, this one, this one, this one's too easy. It is way too easy. So, I mean, it's, it's not even... <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But before we do, everybody that's listening, get out your hashtags. And if you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, CastBox, or anything else that we publish to, then start putting it on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and anything else that might carry a hashtag. Because it's time for another round of hashtag BBQ Watch. Barbecue. 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 All right, in case you couldn't guess, we've talked about Aquaman, the aquatics, undersea life for the entirety of this episode. I, 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 here's the deal. I'm not a fan 
because I subscribe to the theory from Finding Nemo that says fish are friends, not food. But it's just so obvious that we kind of have to talk about barbecued fish to wrap up the evening. I'm, yeah, I'm, seems pretty natural. I mean, that's that's just the only route you can take about this. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about fish and aquatics for two hours, and then we're going to spend the last segment of the evening talking about chicken fingers? Like, come on. Come. Chicken of the sea. The chicken of the sea. Oh, my gosh. I see what you did there. Ugh. I'd boo it, but I don't want to, because that, that was good. That was really good. So, I imagine living so close to the coast, you have easily experienced more and better fish than I have. Um, what's your take on it? And as somebody that, that works in a barbecue restaurant, do you feel like there is a way to include barbecue elements without going overboard? There, I mean, you can straight up smoke fish, and it's really good. Especially you get certain kinds of fish, because there's lots and lots of kinds of fish, as you see in this movie. Lots of th- different things you can smoke. Um, I mean, and down here also, have to remember, uh, you know, we have lots of different kinds, not just fish, but alligators and, you know, other stuff that you also see in this movie. And, you know, occasionally someone will, you know, cook up stuff like that. Um, I haven't had any experience with that. Um, the closest, like, the most exotic thing I think I've ever eaten is, like, ostrich and buffalo. That's the, that's the closest. That's as, that's as far weird as I can get. But uh, when it comes to stuff from the sea, fish is good. But the only problem is when you're smoking it, it doesn't like. I mean, fish is very like. You know, it's it's very flaky and it's very. It doesn't very really hold together very well. So like you have to be very careful with, it, especially if you're putting it on, like on, on like a rack to smoke it on like a rotisserie. It tends to like really fall apart. So you have to be careful with it. So it's not the best, like, when you're trying to, you know, cook it and, you know, serve it and eat it, whatever. Like, it tends to, you know, the presentation isn't very good when you get done with it. But it's really, really good. I haven't actually tried sitting in a long, long time, but uh, would love to try some again because, yeah, it's 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 good stuff. It's good stuff. I'm sorry, Aquaman. I know. I know. You, you, you know. Uh, y- y- you love all the fishes, and uh, maybe he'll like he says in Justice League, he's gonna send piranha after me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing is, it's been a while since I've had anything from the sea. I, I used to date a girl who was really, really into sushi, and I would just eat avocado rolls because I just couldn't, I couldn't do the kind of stuff that she was doing with the sushi rolls that she was eating. But for her birthday. I decided I would try and eat something off of her plate. And she gave me some crab. And uh, I was okay with it. Uh, it. It wasn't my favorite thing that I've ever eaten, but I was okay with it. And I, I, it got me thinking, especially after seeing the crustaceans that you do in the in the final fight sequence, you know, maybe some slow-cooked crab or something like that would be good. Or maybe a barbecue drizzle on sushi would be interesting. You know, it's something that, that kind of... Puts, like, a different spin on it, but is still in, like, a barbecue wheelhouse and has fish in it. Like, it's it's difficult for me to enjoy it, mostly because when I was a kid, I actually used to eat popcorn shrimp and fish sticks a lot. Mm. And then one night, my dad decided he was going to try and prepare fish. 
and he did Mahi Mahi and Shark. And the Mahi Mahi was burnt, and the shark was rubbery. <laughs> and after that, the smell, the texture, everything about fish has just been repulsive to me. And really? it, it, it's just not something that I get on board with. Whenever I go to Red Lobster, I'm the guy that gets the house salad or the chicken Alfredo. Wow. I'm I'm just wow. not a fish person. And, and, like, that sushi that I had with the girl I was dating at the time, I think that was in 2016? It was either 2016, I think it was 2016. Maybe, maybe mid-2017. And it's been that long since I have put fish in my belly. Wow. I just, wow. I do not care for fish. And so... Uh, who, who knows? Maybe if there was something that had a good barbecue element and I had the right circumstances or the right incentives, like I was doing it for a date or I was doing it for money, then maybe I would try barbecue fish. But yeah, it's it, yeah. it's just I like barbecue. I don't like fish. I don't know if there's a good way for you to combine it for me personally. Could it be done? In theory, yes, but not for me, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny, like, where, where we are, like, we serve barbecue in a place that is pro- is in a predominantly seafood-ridden area. Like, seafood is the big popular thing. Anybody mm-hmm. that comes in from out of town, they want to eat go out and eat seafood. Right. Because that's the big thing. And, like, it's funny, we'll go out of town, we'll go up north somewhere, and they're like, fresh Gulf seafood. And it's like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> no, we got the real stuff. Um, But, uh... You know, it, it is it's a big deal down here. And so as me, as as I've grown up near the coast all my life, like going to, you know, eating fresh seafood is is just a normal thing. Um, uh, and, and I've loved it all my life. And I but it's funny how like there's not a much crossover. Like normally speaking, people won't do like barbecue fish or anything like that. Um, like the only time we've experimented with it was like during Lent because we want to uh, get that Catholic money <laughs> uh fair enough sometimes i'm like thankfully there's a lot of bad catholics out there that support us during lent <laughs> that, are to, uh, that are willing to break the rules and eat meat on uh friday so uh i think i think that kind of put that to rest but uh yeah i, I would i would like to try some um thing. it's funny you say you, you you mentioned mahi mahi you know what another word for mahi mahi is right or do you uh yuck yuck <laughs> no, no, seriously. If you ever, no, you I gotta don't. get it cooked. You gotta get it cooked good. Mahi mahi is great. Also, so you might see it on a menu under another name. Sometimes you see it on a menu as dolphin. Nope, I I've never seen it like that before. That's interesting. Mahi 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 is another word for dolphin fish, um, which is different from the dolphin, like the porpoise dolphin, um. So don't get freaked out. When, don't think that people are, are serving dolphin when you know it's in fact it's a it's a big fish. And it's actually like the big like they're like yellow and green. They're big big fish, um, and they're good eating too. I'm doing a Google Images search now because I'm curious what they look like before they get pan seared. <laughs> yeah, see a lot. That's how I like my fish. Like I eat like holy fish, like, crap. Right? That thing is big. I'm telling you, it's huge. They come. They're freaking, like, huge. They're beautiful, too. Like, they got the blue fin, 
and the green and aqua stripes, and they've got yellow on the bottom. Beautiful fish. That's very true. Yeah, now I feel even worse about eating it. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Don't worry. There's plenty of them out there. I, I Don't love, worry about it. I love my local aquariums, and I will, I will get season passes to those all the time. But that's as close to uh, you know, like, you know, like touching rays and skates. Uh, that that's about as close as I'll get to anything, you know, approaching my mouth. I will I will pet them in the petting pond, and that's about it. Sorry. Yeah, that's a good question about Aquaman. Is is there actually any any mahi mahi in there? Who knows? I know there was. I know there was dolphins. There were dolphins swimming with Ar- Arthur in the beginning. Yes. Like, like it seemed like they would have had like every single fish imaginable in that final battle because there's so much going on. There really is. There really, really is. And we've got a lot going on outside of these episodes. If you find us on social media, you'll be able to keep up with all of it. Uh, go write us or tweet us at IPC Podcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram under the same name. We're working on improving some of the outreach that we do, including asking you what your planet score is. Because I know we don't have a whole lot of people that listen live all the time. And maybe if you are listening live, you just haven't seen the movie. So we're working on finding ways to get ratings for uh, certain films from you guys, the listeners. And then uh, trying to do more to let you know about what's coming up and do more about, uh, you know, maybe some fun memes or some quotes or things like that. So... Be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IPC Podcast. And if you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find us on iTunes, obviously, on Google Play, obviously. And then we've also got episodes published on StarWarsUnderworld.com, which is also your source for the latest and greatest Star Wars news, rumors, release dates, information, and a whole lot more. The best place to find us, though, is IPCPodcast.podbean.com. Dot com Pod as in podcast, bean as in green bean, all one word. IPCpodcast.podbean.com. We've got every single episode there. Our entire library of 220-something-odd episodes is up there. You can check that out and uh, try and listen to the stuff that we did four and a half years ago and listen to it compared to what we got today. Believe me, the differences are like night and day. Not even, Not even kidding. <laughs> totally. Ben, where can the folks at home keep up with you personally? They can find me at Ben Hart with no E on the social medias. You got your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram. I'm on all those places. I'm pretty active in there, sometimes too active. Um, but uh yeah, if you wanna keep up with uh what's going on with me and, and stuff and hear my uh random thoughts that come out of my head of it occasionally, follow me there. And then of course StarWarsUnruled.com is where I do most of my other stuff, my my Star Wars stuff. We uh, discuss the latest news and all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, if you're looking for uh, anything related to Star Wars, check that out. And, of course, our episodes, IPC episodes, are up there every single week. Oh, man. We've also got some other opportunities. If you don't want to do monthly contributions as a patron, although $5 a month, honestly, that's like one trip to Starbucks. If you pass up on one trip to Starbucks per month, you get some really cool benefits. But if you don't feel like doing that and you still want to represent the podcast in some way, we now have merchandise, believe it or not. We are on a site called tpublic.com, T-E-E as in T-shirt, T-E-E public.com forward slash user 
forward slash IPC podcast. We've got the planet logo. We've got our full logo and we have got a barbecue watch segment of swag available as well. Everything from hoodies to t-shirts to coffee mugs to stickers that you can put on your laptop. I think we've got a pillow in there. We've got phone cases. There's all kinds of awesome stuff, and a pretty hefty percentage of it goes right back to the podcast. So uh, if you want to represent IPC, that is a really great way to do that. Get your IPC swag on at tpublic.com slash user slash IPC podcast. Uh, if you want to keep up with me, I don't publish a whole, whole lot on social media anymore, mostly because I'm in grad school, and I'm podcasting, and I'm working. There's a lot of other crazy There's stuff. There's more important things. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in my life right now, and it's cool, but it keeps me off the interwebs. But if you want to keep up with my sporadic posts, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Zach, Z-A-C underscore D-F-W. Uh, I give a lot of hot takes and some previews, and I'll retweet the IPC page, and they'll retweet me sometimes because I have access to both profiles on my phone. La-di-da, ha-ha. But uh, you can keep up with me there if you want to. And, uh, yeah, listen to Call the Banners when we launch in early February. And uh, I'll be making appearances on Star Wars Syndicate as well when my Wednesdays are free. And uh, who knows what other projects lie in waiting. We'll just have to wait and see. But until then, just keep up with us here at IPC. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with uh, with next week's episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to leave you in suspense. But... It's going to be pretty awesome. We're going to be taking some elements of stuff that we did last year to kind of close out 2018. And uh, it'll be the last episode of January. And so from like February onward, our focus is going to be 100% for the new year. 2019, 2018 is going to be left in the past after next week. And from there on out, a whole lot of awesomeness is set to ensue. So it's going to be a fun year. Totally. Well, uh, Ben, I know I kept you a lot later than I promised I would, so thank you for legging it out with me, but it was a really fun episode, and I'm looking forward to next week, too. No, I I can think of no better excuse to spend my little time I have podcasting than uh, doing this with you and talking some Aquaman and talking about awesome things that get us excited. I'm, I'm glad that we have something to be excited about. Yeah, that's very true, because who knows... Uh, maybe the next thing we end up reviewing won't be so uh, so full of potential or whatnot. But I'm not gonna no, end. Sizzle. I'm not gonna end things on a detrimental note. I'm gonna end things on a positive note. Aquaman is awesome. If you haven't seen it yet, I hope this episode convinced you to go check it before it leaves theaters. It's absolutely a spectacle worth seeing on the big screen. But uh, I do believe that that is going to do it for this episode of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast. I'm calling it episode 221 is now officially in the books. For Benjamin Hart and Sean Giroux, I'm Zach Arnold. Thank you for tuning in. We hope that you'll tune in next time. But until that time comes back around, we just want to leave you with this closing thought. Anything that can go wrong will. And we will hope to see you on next week's episode of IPC. But until then, good night, everyone. Hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flight The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation
old man along the way Hoping to find some old forgotten words Or ancient melodies He turned to me as if to say Hurry boy, it's waiting there for you Longing for some solitary company I know that I must do what's right Sure as Kilimanjaro rises Like Olympus above the Serengeti I seek to cure what's deep inside Frightened of this thing that I've become 